Monday, January 23rd, 2023. I'm Steven Sersky. Thanks for joining me. And this is episode number 37 of my podcast. And today I have a few more guests joining me, stretching across the oceans uh, today, over the Pacific Ocean, uh, I guess, uh, as I'm talking today with um, Andrew Morehouse, uh, Ilsa Van Rien, and Claire Mayer uh, about their work as part of the teaching team that makes up Latinitas Anime Causa. So this is a... Uh, if you've been following along for any number of uh, years or whatever, you'll know that I do have a training in some languages, uh, particularly Latin and ancient Greek. This trio, uh, along with their teaching team at their website, uh, put on Latin and ancient Greek classes online. They also have their own YouTube channels where they live stream games uh, while they uh, narrate what they're doing in Latin. So I thought it'd be kind of neat to get them onto uh, the podcast to talk about uh, the current state of things with uh, Latin, uh, ancient Greek, classics, ancient languages, and what it's like to be in the field right now uh, in this uh, day and age. Um, it's an extensive conversation, not for the slight of heart, uh, but uh, it's well worth the listen, especially if it's something that uh, you are thinking about getting into, particularly the arts or the humanities. It's worth uh, the conversation to at least understand uh, where some people are headed in their professional careers. So this is episode uh, number 37 with uh, Andrew Morehouse, uh, Ilsa Van Rien, Claire Mayer of the Latinitas Anime Causa team. Recording has started. Uh, uh, being recorded by the host or a participant staying in this meeting. You consent to being recorded. I do. <laughs> I yes. Love it. Formalities. It's the formalities you got to go through. Right. Um, yeah. So I've, I've seen Andrew before. I've seen uh, Ilsa before on your YouTube's cha- YouTube channel. Claire, I've never seen you before. <laughs> I, so I am. Um, yeah. So I record the podcast with them. Um, I was, they, you know, Ilsa and Andrew were the original sort of lock um people and then started adding more people in um so i've taught a class for them on ancient greek actually and um i am now yeah helping with with doing the podcast um so i also have i do have a youtube channel but it's very small um right are you also doing latin speaking as well or Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. So in the podcast, we mostly speak Latin. We do a little bit of Greek as well, um, but mostly Latin uh, for now. And yeah, so we all speak Latin together. Um, I speak Latin in you know, teaching. I'm teaching a class right now at my university um, and I'm speaking a lot of Latin with my students. So yeah, I'm doing a lot of active Latin and, and active, some active Greek less than I'd like, but yeah. Yeah, we wanted to, Andrew and I have been thinking about doing a podcast, a Latin podcast for a while, and we actually recorded the first episode, a pilot, if you will, and um, shared it with a few friends um, to hear what they thought. And although they loved it, we just never really got back into it. And Claire was actually Andrew's friend. They first started speaking Latin together, and we met her um, in her hometown in Massachusetts um, one day, and we just hung out for the day. It was the first time I really got to see her for you know like or talk to her really and I was just like oh this she's awesome right and Andrew and I at the same time were like we should we should ask her to join us and it was funny they were actually like whispering on the side I was like what's going on and they were like well we have an idea and so yeah it sort of started in that way Mm -hmm. so that that was the genesis of the podcast of the uh, LAC podcast yes indeed yep right on yeah like like uh, Ilsa said, we've been talking about it for like I don't know 
three or four years being like, we should do a podcast. And then we just never, we never had time. Life always got in the way. And um, we always let it get in the way. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. So, That's yeah. the problem with these things that everybody else is doing. And you're like, yeah, I could do that. But then the, the division between the people who say they can, and then the people who do, or the people right. who do, they show up and do it. <laughs> exactly. And I will it's, say. And it's, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that that is, I mean, it is always still a challenge. And I think it's really helpful to have the three of us mm-hmm. together because we are able to motivate each other mm-hmm. to record. And, you know, there are some times where we are planning to record and we don't end up recording. Um, you know, there are challenges to that. But yeah, I think having other people to motivate you can can be a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Andrew and I it, see each other all the time. We're married yeah. now. So like we and it's fun. It's still fun to speak Latin to each other. But, you know, it's just so much more fun when you have another person and we all we have we have good chemistry, I feel like. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always fun. That's good. You guys sound like you're having fun on your podcast, which is, uh, again, very, very different from like when I was studying classics many years ago. Um, <laughs> it was Nunti Latini. Uh-huh. That, was, mm-hmm. that yeah. was my spoken Latin exposure. So imagine yeah. your typical Latin class where it's the grammar mm-hmm. translation approach to doing everything. And then when I ask about spoken Latin, they're like, well, yes, there's this radio station in Finland that does it. Right. <laughs> and it's reading yeah. this, this news is it was, it was either that or Papal Latin, basically. Right. It was, yeah. you had your choice. You, you go church <laughs> or you go news from Finland sort of thing. I'm like, yeah. But this, this is actually, this is why I've, uh, I admire you guys. This is why I find it so amazing that, uh, your team, uh, and there's several other people on, on YouTube that, um, are doing this yeah. where, um, it's like you're, you're creating living Latin. You're translating the modern words into Latin and ancient mm-hmm. Greek. Uh, and, uh, you've now given rejuvenation, a uh, 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 life to a language that a lot of people would say is dead. One might say a renaissance. Oh, some, some might say, some might say, right? <laughs> Certainly, yeah, well, the, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the internet and the electronic, uh, renaissance is, uh, taken hold for, I mean, and this is, I, I guess I wonder if, uh, back in my day, like back in 2005, 2006, podcasting had, was just taking off. Mm-hmm. Like that's when they were just starting. Right. And I kind of wonder, I mean, what if, what if, but I mean, it wasn't spoken about. Spoken Latin was a esoteric back, uh, thing back then. Um, it was, do you know Reginald Foster? Oh yeah, we yeah. know Reginald oh, Foster. Yeah. Yep. Right, so yeah. he was like, I learned about him towards the end of my my classics uh, life. And it was a dream to go, I wanted to go study with him in Italy. I never mm-hmm. did, but mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you guys went to some course as well in Italy um, or which one was it? I, I forget. There's a couple. I so, think. Yeah. Claire, Claire and I both actually met at Living Latin in Rome through the Paideia okay. Institute in 2016, um, which is actually it's quite ironic, actually, because uh, Claire grew up in the town that I did my student teaching at. Right. So like, yeah. but we had never crossed paths, never met each other. We were both in Western Mass at the time, just never, never saw or met each other. And then we ended up at this spoken Latin program in Rome. And it was like, oh, where'd you grow up? Oh, in Northampton, Massachusetts. No way. Yeah, That's where I a, taught, right? It was a crazy <laughs> connection. I remember being, I was very excited because I, you know, I was not expecting to go to Rome and meet someone from my hometown or not from my hometown, but who was living in my hometown mm-hmm. uh, close by. So yeah, that was, that was really exciting. Um, yeah. And then the following but, and, years when I met yeah. Ilsa. 
Yeah, okay. so that was also that was also my first year really speaking Latin, but I came to the United States. I was in South Africa, living in South Africa at the time. Um, and I came to the United States to speak Latin uh, for in West Virginia, of all places. Uh, the um, border patrol people re looked at me funny when I when they asked why I was there. <laughs> and I said, West Virginia is where I'm going to go to speak Latin. Do, and, don't you remember that extra stanza of the John Denver song? Right? He, has, he had an entire stanza about speaking Latin in West Virginia. Right? <laughs> of course, of course, of course. <laughs> Um, and I, it's funny because actually you, it's interesting you mentioned Reginald Foster because both, um, sorry, Jason Pettacone, who is mm -hmm. the founder, one of the founders of the Paideia Institute, and um, the person who got us, like a, it was, there were five South Africans, well, four South Africans and one um, person from the Netherlands that they sponsored to come over. Um, both of those people, Nancy Llewellyn is her name, uh, both of those people were taught by Reginald Foster and inspired mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. do this. And so I think it's just, you know, this momentum that started building up. Um, and I think Reginald Foster as a, I, I never met him or anything like that, but I know that a lot of spoken Latinists, the, you know, uh, first ones, I guess, uh, the momentum that they have created has uh, been influenced by, by Reginald Foster. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, he was sort of a he was uh, uh, almost a myth and a legend at the same time. Right. Very much a legend, yeah. not a myth. I mean, he very much existed, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I never did get around uh, to sticking around in Italy long enough to because mm -hmm. that was sort of when I when I found out about him, I was on my journey backpacking to go teach English at that point. So mm -hmm. life took me in a very different sort of a path. But South Africa getting sponsored to go to Rome. What's going on in South Africa that there's so much Latin studies? So um, it's it's so this is what happened. I was teaching at a university there, and the director of the School of, Lang of Ancient Languages had gone to um, or had come to the states to speak. Well, actually, she came to go to a um, what was it? She came for a conference, and she was looking around. I don't even know how she decided because this is before I knew her. She just. She somehow ended up in 2014 in the States at Aristocratio for Salvi, right? Which is the um, nonprofit organization that, that uh, Nancy Whelan founded and uh, with other people. And um, she loved it a lot. She, she had a great time. So in 2016, our university was hosting the biannual um, conference for South Africa, the Classics Association of South Africa, where there aren't many Latinists, there are not many classicists in South Africa, but every two years we have a conference and our university was hosting it. So she decided to invite the then president of um, Salvi, John Byron Kuhner, who was also a student of Reginald Foster. and Also Nancy one Lillard. of our teachers in 2016, for Claire and myself, <laughs> if I may. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yes. So um, actually, I think he, they left from from uh, in 20 so the sorry this is in 2015 yes 2015 was the conference um so they were there we met them and it was a great time and they they tried to kind of do a spoken latin thing but it was an immersion it was but they you know they kind of introduced it and we were all very happy to do it so there were five people who attended uh, not very many right it was just before the it was just before the conference and the con let's say like let's say there are about 60 to 80 people only five decided, okay, yes, I'm going to do this free week of learning to speak Latin, you know, kind of free four days. And um, so few, loved it and but mighty. Yes, yes, very much so. 
Um, and so we, we just, we loved it and we um, really hit it off with them. They were wonderful people. And uh, Nancy Llewellyn said, just before she left, she said, you know, I'm gonna see if I can get you guys over to the States, you know, uh, but with the exchange rate, it's very, it's, it would be very difficult for us to go, you know, on our own um, financially. And so um, we thought, okay, yeah, that would be so awesome. But we did not think that was going to happen at all. That was July, 2015. And in January, the next year, she contacted us and said, hi, I found some money. Oh, wow. Uh, I will, so actually I found out years later that it was her mother who had, who's now passed away, who donated the money for us to come. Oh, and wow. I, would be yeah. I didn't know grateful. that. Yeah, I didn't either. And when I found out, I was crying. It was a beautiful moment. Yeah, but, she um, announced it at the Salvi 20th, right? In 2017. Yeah. Yep. Wow. In 20, no, 2018. 2017. It's the year we met. 2017 is when we met. Oh, and that was also the Salvi right. 20th. Yep. <laughs> you are correct. You are correct, sir. Okay. So, um, yes, she announced it then. So we um, we came over and we had an amazing time. And I haven't missed a um, Salvi Rustacatio since then. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, can I ask, like, how much in general was it going to cost to send four, four or five students from South Africa to the States? I mean, it can't be a pretty penny. Did you take no, the boat um, or did you fly? <laughs> we flew. Okay. We flew. Um, so she, uh, so, okay, let's see. The Rustagaccio itself is about um, $1,000 per person. Okay. Because it covers, it's, a, it's, it's six nights, seven seven days, six nights, right? And mm-hmm. um, it covers room and board, it covers everything. And um, you get, it pays, like we, they, they have um, wine and beer, right? That's also, everything is free once you're there. Right, right? Yes. And you all live in this house together. Um, and they really make sure, they, they have this thing about brain food. So they make sure that there's a lot of food. I don't mean brain food, like disgusting superfoods. I mean like, just they make sure that there's enough food that's good for you as well throughout the day. Um, there are so, occasionally disgusting superfoods there too, but yeah, I, I just like, I just avoid them. Healthy food, but they're good. Yes. It's good healthy food. Yes, yeah, the food generally is quite good. I I'm just joking around. Yeah, and, go ahead. I'm guessing you know, it wasn't raw broccoli and asparagus and no seeds. No, no, no. We didn't no, we didn't take good. on a super acidic diet. We were good, right? Yeah. No, they they do a very good job of feeding absolutely us very well, and then some. Um, yes, and so. Um, so that that's that cost and then the tickets you know at that time were probably easily between 700 and a thousand dollars yeah by themselves so So it's almost 10 grand um, yeah and i think actually we were six uh let me let me think it was the my my the director it was me um it was another professor from a different university and then three students so So we were six we were six people yes so So what happened to the other the other five, I mean, because it sounds like it paid off very well. I mean, you've started this uh, Latin podcast. You've traveled the world. You're continuing the, the tradition. I mean, we're, we're and the, the director as well of the school. So yeah, she also I, came. Yes, yeah. so um, so she was about to re- she was a, about to retire in a, a few years, and she has retired now. So um, you know, there's nothing really changed there. And then um, the other professor uh, who went teaches at the University of Pretoria. He he loved it and he actually started a spoken Latin group at his um, university mm-hmm. where he where so a lot of students still and I think they still meet. I know that when I was last in 
South Africa in October 2020. They were meeting. I went to one of them. Um, and we've had, uh, Andrew said, some students um, who go to those meetings, um, mm-hmm. one in particular. So, you know, he's kind of keeping the fires alive, although he doesn't use spoken Latin in his classes. And then um, one of them, I don't know what he's, I know he's teaching at a university, but I don't know what if he's using spoken Latin. And then another one is one of the very few, and when I say very few, maybe three teachers in South Africa who teach Latin um, <laughs> at, a, at a high school level. By market and, demand, uh, or I mean, he must just, be raking in the cash. <laughs> unfortunately, no. So the, it's a uh, very few schools have it. Mostly the um, m- they're all private schools who do have it. Yeah. Um, the school system doesn't has changed a lot over the last 20 years. They're trying to find a good balance for, um, you know, after the post-apartheid, trying to find a good system. There's a lot of changes. They're just trying to figure it out, you know, and it's, it's, that takes time, changing, overhauling an entire system um, many times to find the right one. Yeah. D- so, does South Africa follow the UK sort of British tradition of, like, you have to have Latin or Greek representation in the curriculum? or Because Canada... Uh, which is where I, I'm from, um, they got rid of any sort of Latin classes back in the 60s. So that was yeah, that sort sounds, of, we split away. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about what, um, like, South Africa has definitely stopped doing that. Um, and so, yeah, we don't we don't really have any classics representation. And if you think about it, very few people really have that Western background, like right. the, the percent, the demographically, right? So um, that's not something that's super important there right now. And um, it's also disappearing from programs where it is required, like theology um, and law. Like they're taking out those things, uh, you know, for their own reasons. Well, I don't so, know. For, for, in general, does a lawyer need to know Latin? I remember right. like there, there mm-hmm. were lawyers that I knew were in training and they had to take a mandatory Latin class. And mm-hmm. it was just like, it kind of seemed almost like a waste of their time. Not that I mean, studying Latin no, is a no, waste exactly. of time. But this I mean, they could make it a seminar sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know if reason. it's necessary for lawyer. I don't know if it's required for most law programs anymore. I know. I mean, just from, from people that I know who are currently in law school, they oh, don't yeah. have to take Latin classes. But some do. I mean, it depends. Although it should be mentioned that at least for the past 10 years, the number one major that has gone and been most successful in entry in law school has been classics. Yes, um, heard, yeah, that is true. I've heard so. The, I've sort of heard the same with business. You know, they study yeah. history. Like, uh, who's it? Jim Rogers is a famous classicist. He's mm-hmm. not a classicist. He's a famous financier uh, who studied at Oxford, which was like... Right. What this guy studied at Oxford? He's not the poster boy for the Oxford classic school. That's what right. Talking. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, and go ahead, Ilsa. Sorry. No, no, uh, I no. I was just gonna basically just say the same thing. It's, I think there's there's something attractive about the ability to communicate right in the humanities that really helps you out in a world that might not seem like it lends itself to that, right? Because even though finance or science or whatever it might be might not lend itself to a very a human element per se. Right. I think that people who come from the humanities um, can excel because of that that aspect. Right. Um, just food for thought. I don't know. 
I mean, I'm yeah, yeah, spitballing. Exactly. But, yeah. yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, taking Latin as a language. So, no, that's no. exactly why yeah. I'm kind of... <laughs> certainly, yeah, certainly. True. That's also true. <laughs> exactly. I have no, to learn so how that's... to speak Latin to become a lawyer. I mean, I don't know <laughs> right. if that's going to do exactly. very much. <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, I don't no. think that sells. I don't think it should. Yeah, yeah. And so, so Theology, I think they should, though. Oh, sorry? So, too. No, I completely agree, but mm-hmm. they have... Um, at least if they're if they're studying Christian texts, yeah, yeah. Which, yes, yeah. And the the university where I, where I was working um, and teaching, they they did take it away, and they are studying Christian texts. But mm-hmm. um, you know, they are they are doing it also in favor of um, German. So they basically you you still have to take a language, either German or Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if I were a student is coming up i would take german if i'm you know because they can they're, they're the main denomination that they're going for as a protestant um like lutheran calvinist yeah no, they, they follow calvin right. they, they follow calvin doctrine so it's all like a lot of that is in german if i'm not mistaken um but anyway so it's not big but now at least this one person uh, one of the students he is now a teacher at one of these schools and he is using using a lot of active latin and um the even though there are very few latin teachers there he's trying uh, they, they are very much grammar translation kill the kill the language kill the love of the language and every single student um type of vibe so he's trying to change that um <laughs> but what form of the verb is that, please? It's not the past right. participle. It is the, oh, no, you're wrong. X, right. you're wrong. You fail the exam. You're done. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And like, oh, and there's this idea that things are translated exactly like this. Like, volo, I, is, can be, I want, I am willing to, no, no, no. According to them, it's like, I desire. That's it. That's what you have. Which mm, is just yeah. not accurate for Absolutely not. how the language is actually. I mean, sometimes volo is just, I am willing. It's not, I want. Absolutely. Right? Like, the ways it you get rid of a lot of the nuance if you just do a one for one translation. Exactly, it's part and of I the mean, problem. And I mean, but... if you think of a, like a core, a core tenet of grammar translation instruction in in Latin, ancient Greek, and other classical languages, is that it, you don't actually receive the language in the besides besides receiving the language in the way that it was meant to be tra- transmitted, that is in the language itself. But also, even if you translate it, you are dissecting it in an order that is unnatural in the language. Right? Mm-hmm. It's very you, every. Latin teacher or student has probably heard find the verb or hunt the verb, mm-hmm. right? And one, and once you have that, then the rest will fall together, right? Which is unnatural to how they necessarily communicated, right? And we I at least yeah. never it never fell together anyway. I was still going. I don't yeah. know what that word is, right? It's like how can I find that verb if I don't know what the words are? Right? Like, yes. I don't even know that this is a verb. I mean, right? Yeah. Or or yeah. the ever present what is a verb, right? Like I have I have students who. Um, don't they cannot identify verbs? And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a, a vice of theirs or, or a difficulty or problem per se, right? They communicate in English without ever knowing what a verb is. They communicate their thoughts, their sentiments, their ideas without ever knowing what an actual verb is. And I wonder about the value of those terms um, in any sort of language learning environment. I mean, like that's very radical talking about like maybe they don't even know the word verb, right? That's like that's on the the other end of the spectrum where it's like, whoa, 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 hold on, buddy. But I think that there is some value to first getting them to understand how to communicate and what they should be saying before they should think about necessarily how they should be saying it. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. I don't know. 
Well, I can yeah. uh, relate because uh, actually one of the reasons I um, I want to get you guys on the podcast is because uh, I was doing this uh, this ESL course, the Delta module mm-hmm. yeah. one, and the first part is all theory, and one of the first part mm-hmm. deals with the theories and of ESL teaching or teaching mm-hmm. a second language, mm-hmm. and they talk about grammar translation, and one reason why it was so uh, it's held sway for so long is because of the latin and the greek the yes. classic tradition mm-hmm. where that was forced upon people right and i i relate this now to my own self find the verb and i'm studying chinese and going i don't know what the verb is i don't know what the character is right i have no right, yeah. is it a, it's just it's not a verb it's not an adjective it's not a nothing it's a it's a character whose sound i can't figure out by looking at it and i don't know what it means anyway so right forget the verb verbidness i just don't know what it is it's <laughs> It's like Latin 101 all over again, basically. Right. But with, but with different, with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> Absolutely. And that must be so frustrating for students when you're asking them to perform these tasks that they just aren't capable of performing and then telling them it's their fault. Right. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what's happened. Right. It's like, find the verb. I don't know which one's a verb. It's like, why do you, why don't you know which one's a verb? It's like, cause I don't know, man. Right. Uh, it's, it's just a new language to me. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then, then what happens is that the, the subjunctive passive, they drop off part of the, the, the passive form of the verb to be, and they're like, and then the professor's like, well, how come you don't know that they've dropped that off? I'm going, because I was looking for the verb and I can't find <laughs> half of the verb and now it's missing. And I'm going, can it be a verb? Right. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's super frustrating for students. And I think that. Well, there's a lot to be said about that, but I don't want to get too far, far down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. I think we could all talk about that for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think actually it's one of the reasons I I, I might have um, gone away from classics. I knew that uh, like when I graduated from my master's degree, it was one of these things. I'm going. I looked at who was in the department first of all, because it was like the the people involved. Um, and my like, if South Africa had a small community, my hometown in Winnipeg also had a small <laughs> community. Especially at my university, there was two universities: one over here, one over there, and the one in downtown Winnipeg had more of a classics following whereas the mm-hmm. one in university of manitoba uh was was a little bit smaller but um i just saw it wasn't just the job prospects um it was just that i was going what am i going to do with this uh and studying classics would not lead me to travel the world and backpack which is really what i want to go do i want right. to go to italy i, I had visited yeah. greece before but i want to go to italy and see that stuff and mm-hmm. shocking italians don't speak latin anymore i know I know. I try, I try to get by on the streets. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They're like, what are you? Ta- what kind of ancient language are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so in terms of, like, so you're all teaching. You're all classics teachers, Latin teachers, Greek teachers. Um, in various forms. I think um, I'm, I'm specifically a teacher. I teach in high school um, okay. here in the States in Connecticut. I, we also teach online through our, through LOC, through Latinitas Anami Causa. Um, but Ilsa and Claire, why don't you speak a little bit more about your background? Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I'm a grad student at, um, at USC in classics and I have, so I'm not specifically a, just a Latin teacher, but as part of that, I teach, um, both as a teacher's assistant, as a TA and, um, my own courses. So right now I'm teaching Latin one, um, and, I have also done some teaching for Paideia, um, some teaching for Locke, and kind of various other tutoring and things like that. Um, so I 
you know, I'm both a student and a teacher, which is, I think, where all of us sort of are in some way. And um, I really enjoy, I really love teaching. I've, this semester just started a couple weeks ago, but I've really loved working with my students so far. And um, yeah, there's something about, you know, seeing students progress from square one so quickly with spoken methods, really understanding and internalizing mm-hmm. the language a lot more than even mm-hmm. I expected. Because a lot of the times I'm working with, or I have in the past worked with students who already had some basics of the language and working on you know, speaking skills, comprehension skills with them. But this semester I'm starting from, you know, really from zero with the students. And it's been honestly amazing because they understand so much more than I thought they would. And I'm like, it's it's a real validation of of the method, I think, for mm-hmm. me to see mm-hmm. in practice. So, so are you yeah. te- you're teaching spoken Latin? So I'm teaching a yeah, so I'm teaching a combination of spoke actually of grammar translation and um you know what we call comprehensible input based methods. Um so what that means essentially, and this is because of the way that my university works and how they want them to learn the grammar. Um so they do require that students learn a certain amount of kind of explicit grammar um, in the language, which means that I have to do some of that. So I do have to teach them, okay, this is what a verb is. This is what a genitive is. This is what, you know, all of those kinds of terms. Um, But I have flexibility in terms of how exactly I do that. So that means that I'm spending at least half the class, if not more in Latin. Um, And then for the rest of the time, so a lot of times we'll do a lot of reading and spoken activities. And then after that, we'll discuss the grammar based on what they've already internalized from the reading and spoken activities mm-hmm. um, so that they already have a mental representation of that in their mind when we get to the grammar part. So we see we, we were doing um, Orberg, we we're doing Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata last week, and we're using that as a main textbook. And, um, you know, for example, we've gotten a lot, we're working with genitives a lot right now. So um, we might see Emilia as, no, that's not a good example. Marcus as Filius Julii. And then, you know, once they've seen that yuli and that genitive over and over again, then when you get to actually talking about what is a genitive, they can understand because they have that picture in their mind of what it is. So I think that that has really helped because like combining those two methods, um, but working first with the more comprehensible input based stuff, which maybe we should explain what comprehensible input is, um, and then doing the more grammar translation stuff after. Right. So you do focus a lot on uh, the grammar uh, just to give them something to visualize in their mind. And then you, you work off of that to the, to, to the spoken. So uh, I think the other direction. The yeah. yeah. So first, oh, you just, speak first and then yeah. you do. Yeah, yeah exactly. So what a lot of the, the beginning of the class will be speaking and reading comprehension and then go to the grammar. And so it's a lot of it is me gesturing or maybe I write on the board a set of words that can help them if they don't understand like Okay, say this again, iterum. I'm doing the hand signs, like these, you know, these hand signs that we can use, um, or words kind of to clue them in in case they're getting stuck. But a lot of it is kind of talking, gesturing, maybe um, saying an English word once in a while when it's, you know, not a word they're familiar with. So if they're, they're learning, they haven't learned cantare yet to sing. And I say cantare and say he sings or something, right? And so using that, um, but they, get it they pick it up pretty quickly i think right um what's the percentage of english uh or I, i'm guessing it's english and then latin right you're, you're not 
functioning in a different language as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's the percentage of um like if someone doesn't know uh do, do you have a lot of beginners like you say you're teaching mm-hmm. this the intro course i mean yes yeah they're not speaking latin going into it or is it their first exposure to spoken latin yeah it is their first exposure to spoken latin and latin in general so they they don't there's a lot that they don't yet no, but if you, I mean, for, for most of them, a couple of them have taken a little bit of Latin for, for most of them, they are starting from zero knowledge. Um, and so what that means is, yeah, you do have to gloss some things in English, but mm-hmm. if you start from very simple structures, um, and like, like you would in, let's say a Spanish class, right. Where you start with, hi, what's your name? How are you? Those kinds of basic structures mm-hmm. and you work your way up. Um, then, you know, by the third day, they already know, those structures that you talked about in the first day. And so you can use those to add in more structures. Um, right. So yeah, but you would the think big difference that you have between Spanish yeah. and Latin is Spanish. You can go use it on the street afterwards, especially That's true. in the States. That is true. Latin, That's true. there's certain communities you walk in and say those words, but I mean, most people would yeah. get it. And, but I mean, that's a common totally. argument going, right. why would anyone ever study Latin anyway? But the, mm-hmm. this, these are people who, um, in your view, like your students, are they people who are like, uh, would they be committed to going on uh, further in this, uh, their studies? Is it a requirement or is it, are, are they just taking it for interest sort of thing? Um, My students, I, some of them are interested in studying it further and interested in, um, I have a student who walked in the first day and said, I want to become fluent in Latin. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there are students who want to continue. There are some that are just taking it because they need it as a language requirement and they thought it looked interesting. Um, but I would say, yeah, at least, you know, a few of my students have definitely expressed interest in continuing on and it's very early still. So we'll see. Mm. Mm. That's pretty neat. So, so Ilsa, what are you, um, what, what are you teaching? Uh, what are your um, your courses that you're teaching this uh, this semester or this year? Oh, Ilsa. Sorry, my um, I apologize. I missed that. My um, I had to change my ear headphones. Sure thing. Uh, so, what are you uh, what are you teaching these days, uh, this semester or this year? What's your main focus? So, I um, what Claire is doing now. I did last semester. I'm also a, a PhD student here at Boston University and I so last semester I taught Latin ones the first semester and uh, I've done I've gone through the whole thing I am now teaching Latin two so this the second semester so I have a lot of students carrying on I have a few new students who have done Latin before and took a placement test and are now in my class we've had only one class so far but um, yeah my the, the you know the the biggest thing is that the biggest reason why I think students, why, why I want to use this method is because students love it. They just love it. You know, I was worried mm-hmm. in my first, on my first day, I was worried that I'm going to start, um, I'm going to get there and they are going to hate it. They're not going to want to speak because everybody was telling me, oh, they take it because they don't have to speak it. You know, right. they, have, they have a language mm-hmm. requirement, but then they take Latin because they believe they won't have to speak it. Is that really okay? It's a really common thing, yeah. Yeah, so we got Mm -hmm. into the first class, um, you know, and I've taught before. I've taught, I taught Latin, I've been teaching Latin since 2012, you know, um, so it's been a while. I started off very grammatic, 
grammatical, like grammatically and like uh, only translation, very little translation even, just very, all the grammar stuff. And, um, you know, so I, I've steadily changed things over time. And um, in, you know, I, I was amazed before when I was teaching in South Africa, when I started switching just a few things, I didn't change the book. I still worked with the Oxford Latin course um, that I'd used before. I just started, you know, changing little things in my classroom and the difference between, um, I think it was 2017 and 2018 with my students, just the amount that they could understand using the same textbook, using almost all the same techniques, just changing these little, like a little switch from, hey, this is a language, you know, so from going, going like, this is a mathematical puzzle or like the mathematical, mathematical like um, problem that you can solve you know, plugging in the right things to this is a language just really changed the entire game for, for the students. And, uh, you know, coming back to my first class last semester at Boston University, I, um, we started with the, the same textbook that Claire is using as well. And I, Sorry, which textbook is that Claire? I, I'm not sure if uh, Claire said, yeah, uh, it's, Hans Orberg, um, Lingua Latina per se illustrata. Um, okay. and it's the first part is called Familia Romana. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the textbook that both that I am using and that Ilsa has been using as well. I also use it um, with high school students and I can speak more about their experience after Ilsa is all set. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, you know, we started with the first chapter, which really just starts with, um, Roma in Italia est like, and it just goes on like, oh, um, uh, Roma oppidum est. You know, it's very, very simple. You can under, they can understand a lot of things with their pictures. Nothing in the book is in English. There's no English in the book, so mm-hmm. everything is done with pictures and with um, you know signs that show these two are synonyms. You know, like an equal sign, stuff like that. Um, so it's a, it's a really they 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 do a good job of sticking to to Latin. Um, it comes with its own you know issues like all textbooks, but. Um, it's super useful. So we were doing this on the first day and I said, Esne Roma in Africa? And, you know, like just circling and asking them questions that they need to answer. And they absolutely loved it. You know, audibly at the end of class, um, one of the students said to another one, that was fun. You know, not to me, (laughs) not to me even, just to another student. Mm -hmm. And um, every single student who came into that classroom state for the entire semester, which is apparently not a very regular thing. Like students will drop and, you know, do like take something else, you know, oh, this was, you know, okay, maybe not for me. I'll take something else. Every single student stayed. They loved it. Right. Um, that must've been a first, the classics department might've been, must've been like, what, what did you do? How did you do that? <laughs> well, you say that exactly. Cause she actually had um, the same numbers from Latin one to Latin two, the same retention rate of numbers of students. Right. And her professors went up to her and went like, that's never happens. <laughs> what are you doing so different? Right. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. the thing is that right. I know, and they and I I changed my classroom actually um, for for ease uh, and and just the the first classroom that the university assigned me was um, not a nice classroom. It had no windows. It was in a basement. Uh, was very mm-hmm. strange. So I changed it to the classics library, which just 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 fit eighteen students. And eighteen. Um, mm. Yeah. So, uh, I, my class had like uh, at the beginning of the semester there was thirty. By the end there was like five. Oh wow! 
yeah. <laughs> often what happens. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. actually a, a good metaphor for retention rates across honestly the entire world when Pretty it comes much. to Latin because of these methods. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and true. so um, my there were students, you know, professors would walk past when I'm teaching, and one of the professors who was a uh, the chair of the department before and is now the director of graduate studies, he just came in after one of my classes. He came in and he said you know, your students are very engaged. Every time I walk past here, they're just like, they're very focused and very engaged on what you're doing. And I'm like, well, they're a great group. And he's like, no, you, you, you're the great one here. So it was, a, it was nice to be recognized. Not wrong, not wrong. Yeah, um, yeah no, I'll, I'll even say that I think there's a, because uh, having traveled and taught in very different places uh, i can say it very much comes down to a teacher as well mm -hmm. like there there's only so far a student's enthusiasm can go before it's you really do have to be a, a a decent educator a good educator and it sounds like you actually care about teaching so i like latin is just the vehicle uh, but i think it's you as a teacher that are able to actually do this which is good we need more people like you thanks yeah no and, and it's and it's really fun and i think that is the thing that you know, speaking Latin, even if we don't speak Latin the whole time, a lot of our classes in Latin, because we're doing sentences from the book, and then I'm asking them questions in Latin, you know, um, and they, they're responding in Latin. And I was I'm just so impressed with them, you know, with the amount of work that they've put in, but they, they really just enjoy it. And um, they, they, are, they have formed this great little group you know, this very nice, good community where they support each other and they're always happy to see each other. The first day of class last Friday, um, I, I walked in and the, most of them were already there and they were just chatting away, so excited to see each other. And, and I do, I have um, a, a few students who didn't continue because uh, there's one student who wants to do Japanese, for example, and another student who's now fulfilled her requirements and Latin doesn't fit into her schedule right now. Um, but she's in class with one of my other students and she just said, oh, you should let me know how everybody's doing and I want to hear everything that you're doing in Latin class because, you know, I'm so sorry mm -hmm. I couldn't take it. And, um, so those things are so wonderful to hear and they, um, you know, they've, they've, they've come a long way. And just like Claire was talking about how amazing she is at their understanding of Latin already, you know, these students... Um, the amount that they can read and understand and I don't mm -hmm. translate or decode. I no, that's read. huge. You know, yeah. They, yeah. They I, the first time I remember the first time in the first semester, I, I made a joke in Latin and they all laughed. Like they all laughed immediately. You know, that is, I had that experience on Friday. Yeah. No, I had that experience where I was, we were, there was a student who drew up this horrible picture of a dolphin on the board and it was really funny and we were all laughing about it. And I was like, he was like, S Delfinos. And I was like, Esne Delfinos? Esne? And they're all just like, ah, that's great. Like that kind of like joy. I mean, it's a very simple, it's a very simple thing, but that kind of like joy that, you know, both the comprehension of the language, I think for them and my like seeing them comprehend the language and being able to interact in it mm -hmm. is that is massive and it's it puts so the human and humanity yes <laughs> you're right no it does but it does yeah. right like it is like we're all human we can all have fun this should be a fun experience and 
Yeah, sorry, Elsa, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I just... no, no, exactly. No, it's yeah. That's definitely one of the, the greatest perks is students want to come to class. Mm -hmm. right? They want to be there. If I may share an anecdote about just how dedicated Ilsa's students are to to her and Latin, right? Um, not to make it sound like she has this like middle cult thing going, but anyway. So um, <laughs> yesterday, this is this happened yesterday, Ilsa um, offered to her students to take them to the MFA and do a, a Latin, a spoken Latin tour. Uh, the MFA is the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Okay, um, yeah. Sorry, I just realized, I was like, I should define that. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, she took the students, and this is on a Saturday before the semester has begun, completely volunteer, right? If you want to come, she was going to be there and leading them through, talking about pieces of art in the classics section, and she also had a scavenger hunt to give to them. And of those, what, 18 students who had originally signed up, what, like seven or eight showed up at least, and then the student who signed up for Japanese and is no longer taking Latin with her semester his semester also came right just to get a be a part of this right and a couple i think a couple of students who signed up for this semester who hadn't even had you yet showed up right so there are something like what nine ten students who have shown up on a saturday college students mind you a college students on a saturday <laughs> right with with not even classes having started are coming to take part in a spoken latin tour and spoken latin scavenger hunt and running around the museum looking for pieces of art whose descriptions are written in latin like children going for easter eggs right it's right. just absolutely it's it's an absolute joy to see and it's a testament to ilsa's impact in her classroom yeah, they and they loved it. They loved it. Um, yeah, he has done the same type of scavenger hunt with his students as well, his high school students. Yes, but that's a that's a field trip thing that I, I don't know if they have a choice, but I think a lot of them would. <laughs> they they do have a choice, and they do have a choice. The answer is always yes, because if they don't, then they don't get. Uh... The parents are like, what else are you going to do? You're not sitting around at home. Right, right. No, but there, there were students who in this year's field trip couldn't participate for one reason or another. And they, they stay at school and they go to study hall. And then they, we come back from the field trip and talk about it. And they're all like, "Why? I wish I had gone. And I was like, same. Yeah, I missed <laughs> out, man. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Claire and Ilsa, you're at universities. But, Andrew, you're, at, uh, you're in a high school. Correct. Yes. So what's the difference? Yeah, there well, be a difference. <laughs> there there is a big difference. Um there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that change when you're in a high school versus when you're in a college classroom. So for instance, when Ilsa described and Claire described the idea of circling, that is sort of asking a question in several different ways around and around again, like Esne Roma in Italia? Sane Roma in Italia es. Esne Roma in Grecia? Non est in Grecia. like all that. That to a college student can be really intrinsically motivating and exciting. For a high school student lasts about seven minutes before they want to move on to the next thing, yeah. right? Um, so the difference, I think, in in college and high school students is obviously in the development of the brain, right? College students, their brains are more developed. They're more intrinsically motivated to do the things they need to do. Um, they're, they're paying their own money to be there, right? Or or their parents are paying their money or whatever it might be, right? They are they are there and paying for it. Student High school students, however, are required by law to be there, which I think is a good thing. Education's great, right? But it is true, right? Like, butts and seats is a law and requirement. Um, and so their intrinsic motivation can falter on occasion. But I, I would not say that is the case for my specific students, but I think that's the general case for, for high school students, right? Is that you are, you are there not necessarily of your own will, right? Yeah. Well, I remember what I was like in uh, in high school, and I, I wouldn't. I, I, you high school teachers, elementary school teachers, I have a, a, a supreme respect for because Same. they're a different inspiration. But high school, it's like you're dealing with hormones, you're dealing with like <laughs> attitude, you're dealing with 
kids who think they know everything and you're like, son, you ain't my son, but I'll tell you, you right. don't know everything. <laughs> right. And that's, and you know, uh, and that's, that's true. That is true. Ultimately though, uh, at least for all the students that I have, have really a warm, a warm heart and a good a good place they're coming from when, when they're doing the things they're doing, right? But you're right. There's there's hormones everywhere. There's drama, right? I have students staying after class to tell me about the latest tea that's being spilled, the new drama, and, like, trying to sort of, like, get it off of their chest. I had a student stay after for an hour to vent because she was going through a hard time with drama in her life, and I was like, you know, I'm I'm the open ear, and I'm very happy to be, right? But And I hear about everything that's going on, and I it's, it's not a wonder that they're struggling so much sometimes in to be concentrating and attentive in school when there's so much going on right yeah, and that, that's sort of you have to be in class like you said with the butts in the seat sort of thing right like they're they're being forced because if they're not there then they got to justify it in another way but now they got to sit through you know a subject they may or may not like sometimes not just Latin, yeah something else as well so right it's uh unnatural Right, right. I think that the lack, the lack of necessary volition can make it difficult. But that said, um, I think that most high school teachers and middle school teachers and elementary school teachers recognize that, right? And, and work to combat against it. It's different in high school for Latin. Latin is not required by every student to take. It is an elective. You can choose to take it. We offer five languages here. We offer Spanish, German, Italian, Latin, and Mandarin. We're also offering ancient Greek next semester, so I guess six. But we offer five languages to full term. Like, you can take several right. years of it, right? Um, I teach Latin and ancient Greek and Spanish, right? Um, oh, wow. Latin and ancient Greek are my main thing, but Spanish, they sort of were like, hey, you can do some Spanish, right? I was like, yeah, why not? And <laughs> and it's worked out so far. Um, but the, the number one thing that I find that is most important, as both Ilsa and Claire have, have stated, is just a feeling of joy and welcoming inside the classroom, right? Right. Um, no matter what's going on inside the school, inside their lives, I've had students tell me regularly, Mr. Morehouse, can I just can I just stay here for the whole day? Like the rest of my day is going to suck. Can we just have Latin for the whole day? Like I have students who are willing to do Latin for six hours straight. Um, and that is that's because, commitment. yeah, and that's because they're they're happy and they're having fun and they feel welcomed. And um, our number of percentages for speaking in Latin um are usually in the 80s to 90s, right? 80 to 90% of the classes conducted entirely in Latin. Um, there's many ways that you can make comprehension happen, right? So um, Claire mentioned that you can use English as a vehicle. Claire also mentioned that you can use pictures as a vehicle, right? There's so many things and hand signs as a vehicle, right? You can say cantat and you can say sing. You can say cantat and go, ah, and they understand what cantat means, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, then you also like get to hear your teacher sing badly. Which of is course, funny. exactly, right? Um, I came me like a wrecking bear, right? Um, so like, whatever it might be, right? You can. There's so many vehicles and options for comprehension that don't lie in translation. Though translation can be a valid vehicle. Like there are certain words that you just have to define in that language. I feel at least, or it's so difficult to define in the in the first language that you're speaking. Like the Latin word virtus. Remember, virtus doesn't translate to English virtue, although it's a derivative, right? Because virtue for us has been like largely Christianized and has this overtone of like um, chastity and and uh, moral uprightness that doesn't necessarily have that same connotation in Latin, where virtus is the idea of what it means to be a weir, a man, right? It's courage, it's manliness. It also often comes with some sort of intelligence or clout. But there's so there's it's a multifaceted word that I wouldn't feel comfortable being just like yeah, virtus significant virtue. Weirdus means virtue. That I don't feel comfortable with just as much as I don't feel comfortable with saying that it means manliness on its own. It's one of those words that needs to be explored just like a lot of abstract nouns. 
But so, so you're. Yes. It sounds like you're. You so with the uh, the spoken Latinness, you're also yes. sort of going behind the uh, the intention of the word. Which yes. yeah, the grammar translation method doesn't really lend itself to that at all. Correct. Like if you go to a grammar, if you go to a dictionary, look up the word "deco" in a dictionary. There are like thirty or forty entries, right, for what it can mean, um, and that is normal of almost any word in any language that it's multifaceted and very nuanced depending on the context it's based in. And to even learning language, even learning words by like flashcards, for instance, is removing language from the context that it's based in. It's removing the words that are around it. It's removing the thing that allows it to be what it is. Um, it needs to have context. It needs to have real meaning attached to it. It has to, it can't just be like, listen, deco means I say, you know this now, done. Because it doesn't always just mean I say, it can mean I establish, it can mean I order, it can mean I determine, right? It can mean a bunch of different things. And so, but if you say like, if you use it in a sentence, right, and the sentence you've constructed is in line and everything else is comprehensible, then they can get that nuance and that difference. And that is part of what we're trying to foster in this learning is that it can't be one-to-one. But what we do do is we sort of sit there and we we think we think somewhat consciously and unconsciously about like what must that mean in this context? And it's a partially conscious and a partially subconscious pro, uh, process, but it's something that's about transmitting meaning. The purpose of language is communication. It's transporting the thoughts I have in my brain to the thoughts that you'll have in your brain via this spoken vehicle. And so it's it's imperative that what we provide for our students has some sort of real meaning attached to it, some sort of real communication attached to it. And so that's that, part of what makes it so com- compelling for them. Because it's real. It feels mm-hmm. and is real. And so they the Roman, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And the and mention was made earlier of like the, the, the argument often is for speaking Latin, but why? Right. But why? This is even a, this is even an argument that was made by the SLA theorist uh, Bill Van Patten in one of his podcast episodes. He said, like, well, why? Why do speak ancient languages? Because there's no one around to talk to, which I also is not think entirely true. There are people that I've had conversations with where Latin was the only common language we had. Right. Um, I taught in Italy in October in Florence at a weekend immersion event with Greco Latino Vivo. And um, my Italian's not very good. It used to be pretty much a lot better. It's not very good now. But I have, therefore, in order to speak to these people, I have to speak in Latin and they have to speak in Latin and there's no other option. Right. <laughs> and so we have real meaningful conversations and the, the force the language carries with that is so real and raw and human that you just can't get if you're just translating. It's also one of these things where uh, you're able to, because they don't know your language, you don't know their language, but then you know a mutual language, which is what Latin used to be for so many years. Exactly. And now, yeah. Being able to function in that language that, uh, I mean, was largely largely relegated to the textbooks, the libraries. Now Now it's not so much anymore. Exactly. Which is quite fascinating that it's had the sort of the renaissance it's having. And I mean, ultimately, I mean... Our ultimate, I think, highest goal, and almost everyone will say this who does spoken Latin, is reading, right? Is being able to read yeah. ancient texts with fluency, right? Um, and that is reading and comprehending in the same moment, right? True reading. Um, yeah. And and speaking Latin and interpreting messages in Latin that are delivered to you in Latin, all those things are going to foster that ability to read a lot more than being able to pick out which of the 30 definitions of deco in a dictionary it might be in that context.
this takes me back to uh, trying to translate Greek with my middle little and oh yeah some yep. of the in- yeah. the entries. I'm going, which one is it? And right. So, like yeah. back in the back in the day, I used to write out a vocabulary list, mm-hmm. but I didn't know which one it was because my translation skills then were still kind of horrible. I get that. Uh, and yeah. it was like I wasn't able to. I wasn't taking in the whole sentence or the whole paragraph or the context of what the word was being used in. Um, and dare I say that this did affect my my language studies, not just in Latin and Greek, but later on as well, uh, that being able to look at a dictionary with 37 entries and going, it's none of those, it's this one. Right. right? I mean, if you've never been exposed to that and being able to understand the context, and I do have this problem with Chinese, where there are so many words or characters I don't know, how do you know the context? Then how do you know which definition to use? And right. so it's very tough, especially if you're studying on your own. Of course, Andrew. I would be interested to know. Uh, and same with Ilse, your Japanese student or former former student. Uh, if you ever said flashcards don't work, Aha. And the Mandarin Chinese students would go, "But I have to because right. if I don't, I don't know the characters." But are any of you at all involved in Egyptian hieroglyphics? Because I know that's usually the trifecta of the classics, like see, Latin, Greek, Egyptian, and Egyptian uses hieroglyphics, which. Is very different from right. studying Latin and Greek. Does anyone deal with Egyptian hieroglyphics so, at all? I think Ilsa's done a bit of that. I have little to no real experience with Egyptian. I have friends who do Egyptian. I but do not either. Yeah. No, I have. I have. I haven't gotten there no yet. Experience. I, I did do Sanskrit. Um, so did I? Yeah. Which, but that uses also sort of a, a sort of alphabetic system, right? It's not like a syllabary or a, a picked. Uh, what's the word? It's a picked something that uses. Pictograph. Yeah, pictographic language. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, so th- it's not that's not what that is, but it's not the same. So Ilsa, I don't know what you can speak to concerning that, but and I can. I also want to uh, uh, add some things about my flashcardy statement in a minute. But first, uh, Ilsa, what what was your experience with hieroglyphics? So I, I yeah, I took I audited a course in, in hieroglyphics taught by um, somebody who didn't really know hieroglyphics. <laughs> very interesting. Um, and wanted to teach. Um, so that's the grammar translation at its finest. I right. don't know what I'm doing. So well, I'll just yeah, this. I'm a professor, right? Um, if it's the guy I think it is, then yeah, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah, where else is coming from? Yeah. It's more of a. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to knock him down. He, you know, he he tried, and and I I learned some stuff, right? Um, and you know, he obviously prepare for classes and so forth but it was basically just using a, a textbook that I, I can't remember the name of and um you know trying to understand as much as we could right but this sounds exactly like my grammar translation experience in high school like you know he tried he showed up to class prepared he tried his best i learned some stuff right it sounds like, like my grammar translation experience in college <laughs> yeah well no not not in most cases but you know, there are definitely cases where I've had classes and it's clear that both us and the person teaching the class are not understanding what's going on in a certain part of a reading. Does anyone so, know what's going on? Does anyone know what's going on in Thucydides? No, no one knows no, what's going on. No, yeah. yeah no, so I think um, it is it's very different, uh, at least in terms of like for Egyptian or in for hieroglyphics, it's very formulaic language that hmm. you only focus on when you when you start at least, right? And most of the what what we have is very formulaic. So, um, you know, once you kind of have a lot of those, if you've if you've seen it a lot, right? 
you can easily recognize it um, mm -hmm. eventually, I'm assuming. Um, I never spent enough time with it, unfortunately, to, to get um, to get to that level. But it's, you know, in that respect, I think it's very close to you know, any other type of language where you are, you know, just exposure, just the more mm -hmm. input you get, the, the better you get it. It's just repetition, right? Repetition is how you learn really anything. So mm -hmm. um, it's the same there, but it helps that it's very formulaic and that there aren't mm -hmm. really many, it's not like there's literature, a lot of literature that we have that we, that especially not in the first semester that you would read. So right. it's not, um, in the, in terms of that, it's not very, it's, it's not the same. It's very different. Mm -hmm. It's hard to speak hieroglyphics. You have to actually speak the sounds, not the hieroglyphics yeah, exactly. themselves. Right. And exactly. You and never, ever, ever would do like, I would, you know, yeah, that's a dead language. Right. And as, uh, <laughs> well, there are people who speak <laughs> Egyptian and done. It's dead. It's over. Right. I mean, if they speak, I'm, I am super, super. So, it's worth mentioning that Stefano Vettori, um, I think that's his name. Uh, he's also a YouTuber. He goes by Rumak also because um, he has done some Etruscan. Rumak is Etruscan. Um, I also okay. did some Etruscan in college. A lot of fun. I learned from Rex Wallace, who is um, a good egg retired professor from UMass. He, he's the guy that, like, if they find a new Etruscan inscription, he's the guy they fly in to figure out what's going on with it. Like, he's... Okay. It was it was super interesting. But anyway, this guy, Stefano Vittori, does speak and write and, and read um, Egyptian, right? But, yes, it's super impressive. And, and as you said, Stephen, before, like... It's um, with pictographic languages like that, where what you're seeing is not representative of sound. It's not representative of phonology. Um, is it's a it's a very different animal, right? It's a very different um, sort of path that you have to take to attack it. Now, and I mean, I I would stand to reason. There's a lot of classes I've seen, at least on like uh, Teach Fluency and other um, websites that do comprehensible input-based um, instruction. A lot of there are Mandarin classes, and I think a lot of it starts first with a lot of audible, a lot of oral, oral input and output, right? Yeah. Um, and then you start to attach characters to these things, these notions, these words that are already built inside your head. You know what I mean? I think that's part of how hieroglyphics would work too. Is first you do oral oral, and you start to create this notion, and then you so show the symbol, and then you say that's what this word you've been saying the whole time is. Like ah, got it, right? Um, because you need to sort of, I think you need to have, and this has been mentioned both by Ilsa and Claire, this mental representation, right? This is the the term used in SLA theory, second language acquisition theory at this point to describe our like um, mental image and, and, and not comprehension, but our mental image of what a language should or is, um, should be or is, right? When you say, I put the cup in English, that sentence doesn't feel complete right? It feels incomplete because put requires a prepositional phase to sort of complete its meaning. Where'd you put the cup? I put the cup where, right? And that mental representation is that feeling that creates that tension of like, ooh, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a sentence I would say, right? Um, and, right? And doing all this input of, of accurate language as to the best of your ability is what creates that mental representation. And I, I'd imagine for pictographic languages, then you just attach images later but i'm also i've never taught a pictographic language so i would want to do more research on that before i did yeah there's uh studying mandarin i mean well, with mandarin they start with pinyin and even the, the mm -hmm. chinese kids here they start with the the, the romanized or the latinized version oh of, interesting of, of the word so it spells out the the, the character yeah. 
in yep. English letters using proper diacritical marks or tone mm-hmm. marks or tone yep. markers. There's yep. only four tones in Mandarin. There's eight or nine in Cantonese. Wow. Um, whereas Japanese doesn't have tones. Greek, right. Ancient Greek has tones, though. It does. Which, uh, mm-hmm. Never, Korea I never don't. appreciated um, sort of the importance of tones because we weren't speaking it. It didn't matter. Right. Although sometimes translating it, if the accent was on a different letter, different vowel, it would change the meaning. Absolutely. Uh, but um, I can honestly say that Mandarin Chinese is horribly difficult. <laughs> the, the the grammar translation methodology of learning uh, Chinese didn't work. Because um, I don't know if any of your students or if it's talked about like, oh, just start reading. You'll pick it up as you go. You cannot do that with characters, right? <laughs> like, same with right. Egypt. This, which, which is what fascinates me about ancient Egyptian, is that there were people who looked at that and went, "No idea what that means," and then people actually figured it out. Kind of like um, Linear B guy, uh, not right. Chadwick, the other one, uh, Ventress, uh, Michael Ventress, Michael Ventress. Yeah. So yeah. that would that story actually always kind of inspired me a little bit to yeah. take on hieroglyphics. Yeah, that is a good yeah. story. No, so so the idea of mental representation, and this is kind of the shift from a grammar translation method to um, using more spoken Latin or whatever the languages, um, especially ancient languages like ancient Greek, ancient Greek and um, and Latin, is just going from a content based class. So here are all the rules, right? Rules are are little facts that you can you can just learn, right? Mm-hmm. And all the application of the rule, just the rule itself. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, that that focus it's like somebody giving you a rule book for soccer right and um you're you're like you're learning all the rules but that doesn't mean you can play soccer okay so but unfortunately that's kind of really <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't mean i can play soccer <laughs> well, you know, i've heard i've heard so, so there go my dreams of becoming messy <laughs> so this is what we have we have we're, we're teaching you know kids all these rules and then expecting them to just be able to apply them Right. right with 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 very few examples right. um a lot of gram, grammar textbooks just work that way and um you know that's that it's a very content based class mm-hmm. whereas what i emphasize also to my students is this is this is a process based class like this learning a skill is a process right um and so it's the what mental representation um how that comes into this analogy i guess is how if you are watching a sport, you've watched a few games, right? You might not understand all the rules, but you have a good idea of what's happening, right? Right. And then if somebody does give you some of the rules as you go, or right, as you have, uh, after, after you've seen a few games, you can understand those rules a lot better because now you're, you're not going from the, like, let's say the, the label, to what it is you're going from what it is to the label you're adding the label yeah. later, and that's really how our brains work so it's mm-hmm. much more intuitive um and it, it just works so much better for students they don't, yeah. they, don't they don't have to mm-hmm. struggle with yeah i in, in finishing this delta course one of the parts that we had to do uh, for the exam was parse a sentence and i've mm. never used the word parse since my latin days right and i i was afraid of using the word parse a sentence in english because i'm like it's english i have no idea what i'm doing i just teach it because it pays me decent money right um, but the the what they ended up having us do and they have had to read this book grammar for english language teachers it's mm. that thick and it's i mean it's as exciting as you would think it is <laughs> um but the 
he breaks it down where there's three different ways that you can read it an English sentence. One is like, uh, okay, so there's the words and the meanings, but then there's like noun phrases and adverbials. Yeah. Then there's like the prepositions. And then there was, oh, there was one other. I should know this, but I mean, there was like clauses. So there's your, yeah. your, your phrases, your clauses, and then your function words, like your verbs and everything. I'm going, yeah. Why does anyone who would speak like this? Like we don't speak like verb. Noun, verb, object, preposition, noun. <laughs> you say words <laughs> that mean things, right? But this right. is what this grammar yeah. translation method <laughs> lends itself to. It's like they want you to more know about the rules rather than like the actual use of the characters. Uh, but it sounds like uh, with all the textbooks that you're using, like there's been a huge shift in the pedagogy and the mm-hmm. teaching of Latin and Greek and particularly in the materials available. I use mm-hmm. the, the Jacked course, Joint Association uh, of Classical Teachers. Yep. yep. Yeah. Did that for Yeah, well, Latin and Greek from both. Oh, and, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, were, they were changing it as I left to the Athenaeus books. Oh, Athenaeus. Uh, yeah. Yep. For yeah. Greek and then for Latin, they went to a different one. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and then if I, I remember, they also had another one for Homeric Greek. Um, I can't remember the the name for that one, but uh, that was sort of separate. But we use those courses, and weren't they written in like the 1960s or 1970s? Something like that. Something it like was that. old, old, old. It was like someone, please update the syllabus. Please right. update the, the book orders. Uh, these books, though, that you guys are, you, what books did you use? And then mm. you're using different mm. ones now. What was the transition from like <laughs> listening to these grammar <laughs> translation um, professors and teachers to like your your enthusiasm to generate podcasts and spoken Latin? Right. I mean, that's a that's a really awesome question. Um, at least uh, so on my part, there are there are three sort of types of books. There's grammar translation, which is like the hardcore, like Wheelock and and um, Jenny and all Learn books like that. Latin. Learn to read Latin, which is, <laughs> man, yeah. That, Are you learning uh, to read Latin? You don't actually <laughs> learn to read Latin. <laughs> Wheelock's Latin was actually one of the more conversational books compared to the JCT right. course. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is, yeah, yeah, it's a thing. And then there's reading method books, which are sort of like um, – Cambridge Latin course and Oxford Latin course and Ecce Romani. These books are are all books that sort of they they wanted to put the reading first and the grammar second was the way they did it. Or you could front grammar, but there's always reading to do because like in Wheelock you don't actually have any reading. You have sentences, isolated sentences that have been pulled out from pieces of literature without their context, and then you have five words gloss that have a six word sentence, and that sixth word is your vocab word, and then you've read something. Right, um, which is more or less just it is it is the case, right? Uh, and then and then there are books that lend themselves to a sort of like uh, I, I guess a spoken method more, and that is part of the lingua latina per se illustrata. Some people argue that the Latin for the millennium falls under that because it has like a spoken Latin section in it. But it's, um, it's like responde latine. There are like questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the the um, lingua latina that. Personally, has been a, around for a while. A very long time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hans Orberg, yeah. Um, along with others, were doing this like the, this whole like nature method thing, right? It was called according to the nature method or the natural method. There's there's a book that exists Italian according to the nature method. There's French according to the nature method, and there's Latin according to the nature method, which eventually became lingua latina per se illustrata, um, Latin illustrated or explained. 
by on its own, right? And everything's in Latin. And that was sort of the rationale for this whole book series is that the languages are taught with only the languages themselves and using pictures and diagrams and other things to establish meaning. Um, and that's the textbook that I used. And definitely not the textbook I used starting. In high school, my textbook, are you ready for this one, was Latin for Americans. Oh, there you right? go. Right, yeah. <laughs> Can't find a better title than that one, right? Oh, um, and like They'll love this book. Right. It says American. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and it's just, it's it's a weird book, man. Like, it's just, it's a weird <laughs> book because, so it has the reading method idea behind it, right? And it starts out sort of in Rome, but then it takes this weird dove tail into like columbus's voyages um in not i would say a good way right and and the the book itself is also like idiosyncratic in its use of latin the words that it tells you that it means it's like oh how do you say yes in latin they teach you benigne means yes which um does not okay just doesn't um like um so it's just so the actual latin quality also in it is kind of wonky so that's the latin i grew up on um and then I transitioned to Virgil, and then in college, I uh, I took a, a, fir- a first a fundamental Latin course, because I was like, I'll just do some review from high school. I finished high school through a- advanced placement, which at that time was all Virgil's Aeneid, right? You, it, the advanced placement program allows you to get college credits, right? So I read, ver- I read 1,800 lines worth of Virgil's Aeneid, and by read, I put that in quotation marks, right? Um, I decoded poorly 1,800 lines of Virgil's Aeneid. And then um, in freshman year, I took my, like, Latin 230 class, which was, like, you're not in literature yet, but you're going to be soon. And the textbook they used there was Disque, which was written by one of the professors there at the time. Also a largely idiosyncratic book for different reasons. Um and then I just started with literature, and that was it. And I actually was an enemy of spoken Latin until my first year of grad school. Um, I that thought, what happened. yeah, what happened? Right, well, I went to Rome, and I went to Living Latin in New York, uh, not New York, uh, Living Latin in Rome, and I was like, wow, this is actually well way cooler than I thought it was going to be. Like I was, I had gone to a couple of spoken Latin things in, in Western Massachusetts. Um, but most of the time I just sat there and was like, I don't understand anything going on. Right. And th- the thing was is that these were already established communities of speakers sort of hanging out and chatting. I was an undergrad. Um, and I was like, maybe this isn't for me. Right. I just, I maybe I just, I I'll get there or whatever. Um, but I, the more conferences I went to in my first year of grad school, the more there were presentations on people talking about spoken Latin and talking about how, if you don't do it, you're bad at Latin. Right. And that was something, and that was something to me who had studied Latin for nine years that felt super invalidating. Yeah. I was like, what the heck, man? I, I can, I can translate Cicero so fast, man. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Not good at Latin. Come at me, bro. Right? Like, that's what I was thinking as a first year grad student. Cause I was like, what is, what is this experience that I had then? If I'm not good at Latin after nine years in my first year of grad school, then what the hell am I good at? Yeah. Right? Um, and then I eventually went and I spoke Latin and it was an environment that didn't really foster that specific ideal. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, I see. So I'm very careful also when I talk about spoken Latin with other people who are not necessarily favorable toward it because of the very experience that I had. And I often mention, I thought it was dumb. I thought it was useless. With other classicists or yes. like other Latinists or is it so other other Latinists? Yeah, so there are other Latinists who are gun shy to speak Latin for a lot of the reasons that we've already brought up. What's the point? It's a lot of time. It's hard. All these different they're things. Also, right. They're also usually very um, socially shy as well. And right, it can be true exactly. And grammar so, translation is comforting. 
Exactly, mm-hmm. right? And it never had, and a lot of people took Latin for that exact reason. They never had to speak it. So now that one, that one sort of solace that they had is taken away. Um, and so, what do you do <laughs> with that? Take away my solace, right? Exactly, it's my <laughs> solace. So, um, as as a result, I'm very careful in the language I talk about this to other people because I do I do believe firmly, and the research supports that if you start speaking Latin and reading Latin on mass, you will get better at Latin. That is yeah. that is something that will happen, um, but I don't also want to tell people that if you're not doing it, you're bad or doing it wrong or whatever it might be. Right. But I I can almost guarantee that it'll be more fun if you do. That's yeah. that's mm-hmm. all I can say. Mm-hmm. But I, I've spoken uh, a lot. But go ahead. The uh, well, with your your like, if you don't know spoken Latin, do you really know Latin? I mean, that right. argument translates to Mandarin Chinese because you learn how to uh, speak and listen. Usually, right. although I don't know what they're saying half the time anyway. Um, if you learn the characters, then you can read, but a lot of people aren't taught how to write, especially right. as foreigners, like non, non-Chinese born people. So I've started focusing on writing because in the tests that I take, I want to write it by hand, which means writing Chinese characters by hand. Mm-hmm. And most foreign, uh, learners of Mandarin Chinese will not learn how to write. So mm. the argument is if you can speak if you can listen and be able to translate like an interpretation, if you can even read basic signs, but you can't write in the language, are you fluent? Right. Uh, I mean, I've taken up the challenge and I'm, I'm going to, I'm practicing my writing and uh, I can say, I can feel my brain changing when I'm learning how to write. That's Mandarin cool. Chinese. Mm. Yeah. I wonder though, if with your experiences in speaking Latin, um, maybe you don't feel your brain changing, but the way that Latin is spoken and it's constructed is mm-hmm. very different from English. Mm-hmm. Find the verb. You know, the prepositions are placed differently. The uh, the verb system can contain multiple separable verbs along the way. What's your experience in speaking? Like, how? I guess the question a lot of people would have to ask is, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you keep all that in your mind? And what's your thinking process in the Latin language? I mean, I, so, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I think Claire should Claire, Claire, um, start off. No, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think when I first started out, um, I was definitely doing a lot of actually creating, you know, verbs out of grammar, out of paradigms and thinking like, okay, what is the perfect tense of this verb? And um, yeah, really kind of not really thinking naturally or speaking naturally in the language, but instead having to go through all of my charts because yeah, I learned in a grammar translation method. Um, And, you know, I've noticed as time has gone on that while there are still times that I might be, I might have, you know, not know exactly what the perfect form of something is, um that which happens does that happen a lot though you're like no it doesn't i mean there's a couple times where i'm like this isn't a very common verb and is it like is it this thing or does it have an extra syllable right is it reduplicated i don't know but um there's a couple times where that happens but in general it becomes a lot more natural because i mean there's you know especially with like a base of vocabulary and base of kind of understanding um you're able to say things with a lot more fluidity. And I find that most of the time if I'm speaking Latin, I'm not thinking about exactly how to compose something. It's just coming out of my mouth. And I won't say that it's as natural as English for me. It's not. 
Um, and there are times where I like, you know, my monitor, which is basically your brain telling you, um, oh, you're saying this wrong or like, this is the correct form. It sort of checks you. There are times yeah. where my monitor comes on and it's like, oh, that wasn't right. And, you know, but then there's other times where I say something and it's slightly wrong, but you just keep going and, you know, that's fine. So I think in that way, it's sort of like learning any other learning to speak any other foreign language. Um, like I learned Italian last year and I felt like that experience was very similar where, yeah, I messed up sometimes. Um, but eventually a lot of things became more fluid and I didn't have to think about how to form a verb. I didn't have to think about, is this the right formation? I just said it. Um, so yeah, but I, and I also, I will say like Andrew was talking about, um, you know, if you speak Latin, you listen to Latin, you read more Latin. I think a huge thing for me was doing a lot of listening, reading, re-listening and re-reading. Um, what were you listening to though? I mean, so a lot of, kind of so there, yeah, I amount. <laughs> yes, no. So there actually are quite a few at this point, quite a few Latin podcasts. Um, Cuomo Dikitor is a podcast that uh, has been around for a long time and I would, you know, listen, and Andrew, I know, has done this quite a bit, and Ilsa as well. Uh, I would listen to Cuomo Detour, and I would listen to the next episode, listen to the next episode, and then I would re-listen to it a few days later. Um, you know, there's other Latin podcasts as well, Philologia Perennis. Um, there's uh, Satura Long. There's all kinds of different different Latin podcasts of kind of different levels, different uh, materials, and YouTube videos. Um, and then there's also Orberg's recordings of, um, of Lingua Latina. So I would listen to those and I still do sometimes listen to those, um, especially the later chapters as it gets more and more complex and just put those on while I'm cooking, um, put those on in the background and, you know, it, the listening also becomes very fluid because when I was first, when I first started listening, I was like, wait, what did they just say? What was that verb? I don't know what it is. And then the next time I would listen to it, I would already have that context. And we're talking about, you know, being able to incorporate kind of new, new words and new structures into context. When you already have that context, you know what they were talking about. Even if you didn't catch every single word, then the next time you listen to it, it's going to become a lot more fluid. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how I progressed. Um, and I definitely will say that like, yeah, in the beginning, I was very scared to speak. Um, it was, it's nerve wracking. It's, you have your own kind of language ego that you're putting out there. And even up until really a few years ago, even though I started speaking Latin in 2016, technically, um, I wasn't practicing very much. I didn't have very many people to practice with until a couple of years ago. And, um, I think, you know, a few, a few, maybe like a year before we started the podcast was really, really when I started speaking a lot more, um, and becoming more comfortable with that. And a lot of that was me just, deciding that I was going to do it and deciding that I was going to make mistakes and that that's scary, but that's. So who were you speaking with at that time? Because I mean, uh, as Andrew mentioned before, sometimes there's a pushback in the community where they're like, what what are you, what are you wasting your time for? Why are you doing that? Well, I was speaking with Andrew. Um, (laughs) At that point, I don't think Ilsa and I were speaking Latin very much together, but we, um, we had never really spoken. Yeah. We had never really spoken before capacity. Right. Yeah, exactly. No. So we, we didn't really, I mean, like I would, cause I, Andrew and I were friends were, so I would call Andrew and then Ilsa would be there and we hadn't actually met right until 2021. 
Um, and so, yeah, I was speaking with Andrew. I have a couple friends as well from the program that we did in 2016 who um, are in the same graduate program as me. And so we would speak together. Um, I would take classes. So some of the classes online um, through Telepidea, through now through Locke, those didn't exist back in the day. Um, but, you know, through other various uh, venues, um, Seamus as well. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't, to be fair, I, I didn't take Latin class with him, just, you know, saying that those are out there. But, um, yeah, I was taking some classes. I was speaking with, with friends um, and honestly speaking to myself a lot. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time. No, seriously. Like, I, uh, I talked to myself a lot, too. Yeah. Talking to myself in Latin and Greek. Yep. Like, I've done a lot of that. And I sound, I probably seem crazy. Like, I'm in my apartment and I'm just like with us talk you know but that's and they're like what's happened to the lady beside us i mean she used to be so nice <laughs> <laughs> and now she's it's the exorcist all over again yeah, right exactly right um but no but seriously it's like that also helped me with because i was worried about speaking in front of other people that i was able yeah. to if i was able to speak to myself then i kind of i had already maybe practiced that more that skill more and so when i went to speak to other people um you know, just getting the words in your mouth, having the words in your mouth and having had a, that experience made me feel more comfortable uh, yeah. speaking with other people. So have you published any of your early uh, self-spoken uh, record? Did you record <laughs> no. yourself at all? No, I did not record myself at all. But that's a good it's a good question. I no, I did not. Um they're cringy. I, I mean, I have early recordings of me speaking same. various languages and it's just yeah. like. I'm not brave I, enough to publish these just yet. Right. I did that in Italian, right. and I would like to go back and look at them now. They're probably really cringy, but I did a, an update every two weeks when I was learning Italian. Um, yes. And I'm sure they're awful, but yeah. So I didn't do that with Latin, um, but I do have. So I mean, one of the things, one of the other things that I did do, um, which I think would be a good thing to go back and look at, is I did a lot of writing and right. a lot of like prose composition i don't want to call it prose composition because it wasn't i wasn't using a textbook necessarily but i was you know writing down i wrote in a journal i would write in a journal in latin or in greek in latin yeah yeah or greek um, well which one or how, how? both so i would alternate sometimes days one day in latin one day in greek or i would do a week in latin a week in greek depending on yeah, so I I do have those, and that would be interesting to look. Would back you write to. the same things? Like, were, were you writing like one? You were just translating from Latin to Greek, or what was it? No, it were was just... like a journal about my day. I would say this is right. what I did today, but in Latin. So I would say, okay, okay well, today I went to the grocery store. I did this. I I had dinner with friends, and then I would write maybe some thoughts on something I was reading or what I was thinking about. Um, and so it would depend on the day. Um, but that's commitment yeah. how long would it take you in the beginning a really long time i mean i usually only would write like a, a couple page, small pages so it wouldn't be very much but in the beginning definitely much longer um and then it started getting a lot faster i think when i was doing more and more speaking um and so not too long like maybe i'd spend 20 minutes doing it um, okay, so it's a decent 15, amount. 15, yeah. you know, 15 minutes, but I would also be writing more. So then I would be able to write like larger quantities. Um, and you were doing yeah. this on your own. You didn't, you weren't working out of a textbook or like those, uh, was it North and Hiller books that uh, are so famous? <laughs> so mostly on my own. I did work a little bit with Bradley's Arnold, but I did not like that very much. Um, I did 
work uh when i was doing greek composition i did work a fair amount with um eleanor dickey's book which is really good um and i was doing some exercises in that to kind of start out and then i started when i was journaling and i think i journaled a lot less in greek than i did in latin but in greek what i got really into was actually just writing stories and prose composition um in in general so i started writing uh you know, not just journal entries, but uh, I was, well, I was actually taking a prose composition class in Greek um, with Seamus McDonald. And we, that motivated me to do a lot of writing, but I would, I kind of continued doing that because it was fun. Um, So a little bit of working with textbooks, but mostly I found, especially the Latin ones to be quite boring. (laughs) Rigid. Yeah. yeah, it was like Stiff. the army. <laughs> yeah, it's like these, these crazy sentences. It's like we lock sentences, but you have to write them down. Yeah, so that didn't that didn't work out well for me. I missed it all. The uh, the one I, I graduated from my bachelor's. I took a year off, and then when I went back to do my master's, uh, I found out that they offered the one Latin written writing course when I was not there, and I was like, mm. "WTF!" Like you could have, yeah. Just, yeah. Like what? Honestly, why? And they would never offer it again. Again, it was a small classics department, so I mean, right. can't hold it against them. But it was very hard to yeah. self-start uh, writing Latin because life is fast, faster than me writing Latin. And I'm so impressed, Claire, <laughs> that you're able to do that. <laughs> I mean, I and to be fair, I have not done it in a while now, um, mm. partially because life gets crazy. Yeah. And yeah, I'd like to start it back up again and get some of those habits um going i found one yeah. one of the other things that sort of prevents me from uh doing something like this even just in chinese is that uh in writing it takes a long time but then reading it i don't know about you and your preference towards paper books or ebooks or digital books mm-hmm. but like uh paper books you can spend a long time looking at but looking at a screen especially like chinese yeah. or any language yeah. where you're like i don't really know all the words although digital makes it easier to translate it's harder on the eyes as I felt. Yes, right. So Absolutely. If you, unless you're able to scan the the Latin very quickly or the mm-hmm. Chinese very quickly and be able to understand what's going on, it becomes almost like a a, a strain. It becomes a strain. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Eye strain. No, it's, it, yeah, it's real. <laughs> uh, Andrew Ilsa, so you, do you guys incorporate writing to your, your courses at all? Ilsa, why don't you speak to it first? So my students don't necessarily write a lot. Um, we do some activities. We'll do um, we'll do some writing, some story story writing. They they have to answer a lot of questions in Latin, um, but also I usually give as a as like a bonus question on on tests and exams. I give them the option of writing a story. Uh, usually, so the my exams are set up in such a way that there is a story. That they that all the questions that I ask comes from the story because it's all about context, right? There's, you know, um, there's there's really no language without context. So I give them a, a story that that um, I have composed or Andrew has composed. Any story that I can kind of get that will cover what we've done so far in the book to a certain extent, the vocabulary and grammar, um, and then um, they have to read through the story and answer a bunch of questions. Some of them are comprehension questions, some of them are grammar-like questions. But then, as a bonus, I, I'll say something like, um, you know, write an alternative ending to the story, or write just whatever you want to write. Um, and so there I get students writing, and I, um, I've i always been very impressed with uh, their 
not just not just their ability to write something in Latin that's it's fairly comprehensible. Like I can actually understand exactly what they're going for, even if the grammar isn't perfect. Yeah. But even more so, the um, just their will to do it. Yeah. You know, mm. uh, I'm I struggle with writing stories. Because I feel often that I'm not very creative, even in English. Right? That's not a that's not a Latin thing, and um, unless I'm very inspired to do so. But you know they'll they'll I, I give them more time to do it after like they don't have to finish the test in the hour if they're going to write the story. So, some of them stay behind for like twenty minutes to to an hour to write a story after they've taken a test. You know, um, so I'm I'm <laughs> I'm sometimes just very impressed with their their gumption, you know, and all of this. But uh, so they they enjoy that. Um, Yes, that so speaks that, more to your teaching abilities, I think, that you're inspiring. To, I, I, want, I want to call them children, but they're not children. The students, yeah, no, right. the I learners. I call them the kids, but they, they, <laughs> they, they're little adults, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, no, so they, and they, they, they do enjoy it, you know. Um, they like making up little stories. And the, a lot of them are super, super cute. So sometimes I'll just, you know, highlight some of the, the, mm -hmm. the, the ones that I especially found, found interesting. Always make little notes like, bye-bye. Which means wow, mm -hmm. you know. Something. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, Andrew does. I think a lot more of that. It's it's a little bit more difficult in a college class because we just don't have enough time, and we're expected right. to do all the grammar right within one year, just yeah. like it was for Claire as well. So um, I think for that reason, that's a big part of why we don't do more written composition. Because um, you have to do it a separate course. I think it's a uh, it's you, you, there's no comprehensive latin or greek course it's they're all sort of it's latin in translation or something like that like where it's latin 101 but you're not expected to write there's no writing component basically mm -hmm. requirement i should say right yeah i do a lot of writing in my latin classes um um in a number of ways so there's a lot of story creation that happens in my latin classes um, students really like to express themselves with stories. Sometimes they're funny and cute, as also students are. More often than not, they're a little bit disturbing and gruesome. Um, like, th there was one story that was written, I swear, I was like, do I have to send this to someone in an office? Like, I think that there's something... And it's two of my, like, sweetest young girls, they wrote this story that I was just like, this is... I'm afraid. Like I'm like, but it was it was generally it was actually okay. I talked to them about it, and they were just they it was fine. It was just they thought it was funny, and I was like, I'm not sure this is actually funny, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like like let's say what humor is, but anyway, different lesson, not for Latin class necessarily, but we, but so we. They do a lot of story writing, um, and sometimes I will have them manipulate a story that already exists, as Ilsa does too, right? Is like, change your ending, write it from a different perspective, like, write it from the perspective of this character, write it from the perspective of this character, add a character that didn't exist before, and see how the dynamic of the story changes. Like, a bunch of different things that um, activate their creativity, but already have a structure or frame they can work around. Um, very, very rarely will I hand out a piece of paper and just be like, write me a story. It doesn't happen very often because, like, that's so that's so daunting, right? Like, you have a blank page of you to fill it. But if they already have some sort of material to work with, I'll do that. Sometimes as a warm-up, I will write uh, the beginning of a story, four sentences or five sentences. I'll be like, all right, five, write five more sentences. How does the story end? And what that does is also is that it, it gives me a ton of um, – Gener like generated content that's at their level because all the students are generating it and then we read them together and we decide which one's our favorite and it's super compelling because all of them wrote it 
And so, like, all of them are like, that, who wrote this? What? Who wrote, who wrote, who wrote this crazy story, right? Or whatever it might be. Um, and all the students are really, really invested in understanding the language and they forget their learning. Um, sometimes we'll do, I'll do a, I'll talk about a picture, right? And we'll talk about things that we know about in the picture or things we don't know about in the picture. And then once we've talked about the picture, I'll be like, all right, write a story that this picture would be the illustration for. Um, and the picture can be of anything. Right, that I decide is is fun or entertaining or compelling in some way. Maybe it's a, a cow kicking another cow or something. I don't know. Uh, so, are you seeing like a hundred percent participation in your? Cl- How many students do you have in your high school? Class? So, my high school classes vary in size. I've had as my next semester, I have as small as like six, but I've had as big as like eighteen, twenty, twenty-one, something like that. I've had generally that's the class sizes of this school period. I think by contract, yeah. we're not allowed to have more than twenty-four. So yeah. 24 sort of our cap. So the the rate the rate sorry the sizes vary in range, but I think the average probably falls out around like 13 to 14 students and I do That's see so, 100% so participation. Yeah. The, like I I almost never have to say to a student, "Okay, come on now, get to work or whatever" because I try to make it feel less like work, right? Wow. Um like we if they're writing a story, a lot of them are having fun doing it. Right, and they're just like, yeah, let's let's do that. Can we can we write the story again, or can we play this game again where you speak Latin to us? And it's like, oh, I guess we'll play that. Ah, you got me. I guess we'll play that game again where you have to listen to me speak Latin for twenty five minutes and do the X Y Z thing, whatever it might be. You got me, right? Uh, so like, I will also throw those things in as like those are the treat. But then they'll ask for the treat, and I'll be like, "But the treat's really good for you." The treat—it's like when you give—it's like when you exactly. It's like when you give a child like something that is they think is really tasty, and it's not, or I don't know, like you know, like you give broccoli covered in something. I, I, the metaphor's gone, but there's something there, right? Where you give them a treat that's not really a treat, but it is a treat, yeah. like a real yeah. granola bar. It's a bar of granola. Right. And you're- this is terrible. It's right, healthy for you. Right, right. But then, like you know, you you get them convinced that the granola bar is really tasty or something or whatever it might be. I don't know. Like, I often tell my students that, um, and everybody else that I, I'm just tricking them into doing more more Latin. Right. I, and actually, yeah. an activity that I got from Andrew is um, basically you take a bunch of vocabulary words that they've recently done, and you give them one word at a time, and they have yeah. to make one sentence with that one word, but you split them into groups. And then they'll each write a story. So the, the, the first word that you give them, like, let's say it's lupus, wolf, right? Then they make a sentence, each group makes a sentence with mm-hmm. wolf in it. And then you give them another word, and uh, they're all the same word, so they have to make a, another sentence. But the sentence has to kind of form, a, you know, it has to be a connection. Uh, has to be a story. Yeah, yeah. a story. So um, I did this once. Uh, my classes are only fifty minutes at a time. Um, so they did about four or five words, and then we re- read each of the stories. Um, and you know, they they absolutely yep. love. Yeah, because they, they like hearing their peers talk about like, their stories. Cause they're like, "Oh, this is funny, right?" I mean, right. They get really into it, or they're like, "That's ridiculous. That's absurd." Exactly. You know, and yeah, then, yeah. yeah. And like yeah. for example, in the book that we use, um, the textbook that we all use, uh, there's uh, these two boys, and one of them is just, you know, he's he's a they troublemaker. Like most most people don't like him. His name is Marcus um, in the in the story, yeah, and like, he's a troublemaker and and so forth. And um, so you know, then one of the groups will 
take the wolf and kill off Marcus. Um, yeah. And then As you everybody's do. like <laughs> right. this, this little shared thing that only all of us, like inside jokes that everybody here understands and knows. Right. Um, you know, so and, there and, are so many ways that this can form this nice little community. Yeah. And in the confines of that universe, no one thinks about the fact that Marcus is like 12 and they're just having Lupus murder a 12 year old. Yeah, but like, you know, yeah, right. Like so this sounds like bring that up. Sometimes so, like, oh, well, do we want to do this? Sounds like the beginning of an episode of Law and Order, but I guess it's our story now. Right. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 true. That totally happens. And that that specific activity that also described, I do that often at the beginning of almost every chapter and I use new words they've never seen before. And then I usually define them for them. So, like, if it's lupus, I'll just put a picture of a wolf. It's like, there's a lu Now you know the word for lupus, right? Use, this, use it using that. And then they've seen the new 10 words that I want them to see that are coming up in the chapter we're about to read. And they've seen it in four different stories in really enjoyable and active contexts, right? So it's, it's a way to trick them into learning vocabulary that they need to know moving into the chapter they're going to be reading that makes it comprehensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, across the board, what would you say are some of the problems that your weakest students are having in learning these quote unquote dead languages that mm -hmm. maybe not be used outside the classroom as much? But what's some of the, the things that you're seeing that people struggle with? Mm. That's a really great question. I mean, we we know that people acquire languages at different rates, right? At different rates. And we are, it's complete, at least in research right now, we're unsure as to why. Right, there's not a, a a complete consensus on why some people learn languages faster and some people learn languages slower. But we do know that it is a thing that there are people who learn it faster and people learn it slower. Um, I think the biggest difficulty I find with students that are my slower acquirers is confidence. Right, okay. it's a lot of confidence and self comparison. They'll look at their peers who acquire languages faster, and they'll be like, "They're smart, and I'm dumb," which is not which is not the dichotomy that, that we should be building. And nor is it factual to how languages are acquired or learned. So I think that that's my the biggest issue I see with my students is this this confidence feeling. And a lot of the people who tend to be slower acquirers, this is not true across the board, but those who are generally in the Venn diagram of slower acquirers are also the same people who have been told through most of their school careers that they are stupid or told that oh. they are not like good students or that they're not made for school or things like that. And so I think that there's there's a there's a huge confidence key there that can really really affect their willingness to participate and willingness to take risks because like learning a language is as claire mentioned before like just you, you put yourself out there right you put yourself out there you're ready to make mistakes right that's what you have to do it's part of it it's what children do but children don't yet have like the social cognizance of being yeah. good or bad at something they're just like i yeah i i just hit my mic really hard sorry like they just make noises and do whatever they're kids right they're just and so, I mean, my I focus a lot in my classroom on social emotional learning and and having students feel comfortable with who they are and comfortable in the classroom environment. I always make sure that the community that we're a part of in our classroom is very positive, very uplifting, because um, if it's if it becomes competitive, like competitive in a bad way, right? Then that student who isn't the traditionally good student, quote unquote, will just get further ostracized and left behind. And that yeah. that's just it's sad, you know, because yeah. they have just as much capability as every other student next to them. In a, in a college classroom, I don't have to focus as much on the social emotional, uh, you know, states of my students uh, because they are they're older. 
Um, mm-hmm. Although we do, I do a lot. Like my, the, one of the things that they, my students will often say is that um, they, they know that it's okay to make a mistake. I never, mm-hmm. like, even if I, if I correct in any way, it will never be like, no, that's wrong. Right. I will help. I will definitely everything that they did right. I will I will highlight those things and then I will definitely share with them like how they can improve that. But it's never in the in the in a um, no, you you don't say it like that. It's right. A punitive harsh. way. Right. Yes, yeah. Never. Um, because that's just not it's not conducive to learning. Um, mm-hmm. if, if they're scared to open their mouths. Right. Then they're not going to learn. And that's some of the things that I I that I think all of us emphasize at the beginning of, of um, each you know course is just we're going to make mistakes together and that's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. We're all going to learn from that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no baby gets up and just walks. Right. Uh, you're going to stumble, and the more you yeah. stumble, the the, like, the better you'll get because that means you're practicing. It means you're doing stuff. Um, so the social emotional thing is like the the confidence is definitely a, definitely definitely present right or or the lack of confidence if that is present in a, in a college student that will definitely affect them but um so that's part of why we build this type of community this type of culture in our classrooms that they will support each other and be open to each other make also at the university level you have different ages in the same classroom whereas at high school they're all yeah. the same age and if you're not keeping Typically. pace with your your yeah. your your classmates it gets difficult but university you can meet that old man or the old lady or you know the senior student who mm-hmm. is like don't worry about it who can give that like one second reinforcement don't worry about it just keep on going try this yeah. you know it's it's, yeah. it's a yes. different mishmash of people exactly right? so so the thing that i find with my let's say the the students who um who, might, who don't do like as well i guess um would be just basically students who haven't spent enough time reading haven't spent enough time with the language, um, usually because they're already just so stressed out and overworked. But, um, you know, and that 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 manifests in um, in their dif- in the difficulty of them seeing the slight changes like details. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an it's an inflected language. Latin is an inflected language. So they might not always see all the all the little details. They might not always notice it. Although so my students in general will notice the detail, but when I ask, if I ask them to uh, reproduce it, right, so to to basically um, compose that same thing themselves, um, not just with a sentence, just in general, I'll say, if I say, okay, well, here's a sentence, like make a sentence with this word, they will sometimes, um, the, the, let's say the weaker students, I guess, um, will not have that monitor that Claire was talking about yet they'll not have it as strongly and so they will um they will write something like um Marcus est filius Julius right so they'll say like mm-hmm. Marcus is the son Julius instead of Marcus yeah. is the son of Julius but I also have like most of these students by um you know like the third week you'll see students like automatically you know, fixing that if they do say it. Um, but there all definitely are still students who don't. Like, they just don't, they don't notice it yet. And I think a lot of that is um, coming from just not having read enough. 
and but they or can written they can, out they can, their grammar it. tables. Yeah, they gotta <laughs> write out those grammar tables. Yeah. So the thing is that they can read it and understand everything. <laughs> right. Right. If they read it there, it's a different type of skill. It's a different mm-hmm. type of brain that's processing that. But it's just in the production that they might not yeah. be as on point. Which always yeah. lags behind anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've had the same experience in with my students so far. I'd, I mean, I've only had them for two weeks, so it's very hard for me to say um, right now. But I can already I mean, there's already things that like I can see. And I think I mean, I would say my experience is similar to Ilsa's because we're both at universities. Um, but one thing that. Yeah, one thing that I I have seen that has been a bit of a struggle is actually students who have had a little bit of Latin before, um, because if they have, because I have a couple students who have had Latin before, and there is a little bit of a shift that they have to go through in, you know, if they had grammar translation based Latin in high school, going to a new method that takes that yeah. can take a little while to to set to you know set in their brain so i think that has been something that i've noticed but i've also noticed that students have over the past two weeks adjusted to that pretty well um and i also one of the things that i did at the very beginning first class was i was straightforward about the method that i was using and i told them this is my method this is why i'm using this method um and so i think they were kind of primed for that but still if you're you know, used to learning all of the grammar tables and you go into a Latin class where you're doing a lot of reading and a lot of speaking, listening first before going to the grammar, then that's going to be a little bit weird for you. And I, you know, I understand that. So, um, yeah. And also, you know, students who have had some grammar will be like, oh, what case is that? Because they, they know they've learned it before, but the other students haven't learned it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I have to sort of be like, okay, well, we haven't, we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, maybe I'll tell them after class. We'll have a conversation about after class. But we haven't gotten there yet with the whole class. Uh, we'll learn that in a few weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And just kind of keeping people on track. Um, so I think that is a experience that is more unique to university Latin um, because you have students that are coming from different high schools, from different backgrounds, and some of them either wanted to retake Latin or place into Latin one, even if they've had a little bit of Latin. So. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, I guess the grammar tables, uh, writing those, because that's what I did. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it was more of a focus on reading and translation rather than spoken production. Uh, And I I tried to use that same sort of approach with Mandarin. It didn't work so well. Mm -hmm. But other inflected languages like, uh, well, Ukrainian would be uh, like the Slavic languages, Italian, all those. Right. Um, Would uh, French be inflected? Yeah. For verbs. Verbs are inflected. Right. So, I mean, things like that, you, there's something to be said about sitting down on a, I don't know, Friday night and doing your grammar tables. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Saturday night. What, what do people Glass do on wine. Saturday night? Right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that these things are, are still useful. They're still engaging with the language in some way. But it's just that if you see, um, you know, like, o este mustisnt, right? The present indicative, active, uh, you know, um, endings, then you're. <laughs> That, does, that doesn't give you any context. Right. right? And you're yeah. learning the one thing that one of my professors, who does not speak Latin, but uh, when I was uh, in undergrad, is he would say, okay, well, we're going now, because now we're reading, 
we're reading Latin, right? We're mm -hmm. translating now. So now you have to change the way you're looking at Latin from going top to bottom, right? Or este musizun down the table to looking at it linearly. Yeah. And so I still do tables with my students because I, I, I have to. They have to know these things. Next year, they're going to go, if they right. go to Latin, they're going to go to a different professor who's going to expect them to know these things. They're going to expect them to read and they'll do very good with that. But um, if they don't know all the grammar things and they don't know how these things change and I, they, they, they'll have, they'll be lagging behind. But they, the thing is that I think it's still very useful to know this. It's just, it shouldn't be the first thing you learn. You shouldn't learn the rules right. and then, um, then look at the game. You know what I mean? It should, it should always first be reading the language or watching the soccer game, whatever, and then looking at the rules. So when I do, um, you know, the different cases, I'll write a sentence trying to use as many of the cases as I can um, in the first declension, mm -hmm. and then say, okay, so see how that goes there and that goes there, and then I'll just change the words to, to fit a different declension. And um, that seems to work very well for them because it's it's linear, although it's going into a table, but they see it going in. and it, mm -hmm. it, So it's it is much more comprehensible. It's not out of context. Yeah. So mm -hmm. do you guys see that the, the cause you said the, your students will go on to the next semester. Well, maybe the grammar translation will kill their love of the languages. Who knows? Uh, but are you seeing there's a, a, a shift in general in the, do you call it an industry, the field? Yeah, the I field. I would call it an industry, yeah. but the field. Right, yeah. uh, because so you guys are teaching a lot of first years and uh, Andrew, you're in high school. Um, has there been a shift towards more of a living language rather than the grammar translation, almost kind of dead language approach uh, in general in, in the field? I, I would say at the high school, yes, for sure. Um, across the country, we see this shift happening. More and more teachers are moving toward a, more toward a method that is utilizing comprehensible input-based methods and ideals, right? Um, that That is definitely happening. It's still... I'd still say that spoken Latin programs are in the minority of all the Latin programs in high schools, but um, the minority is much smaller than it was before. And every year there are more and more people who are sort of getting into we this lost thing. Andrew. Yeah, oh, we lost I have to. Uh... Okay, I can. Oh, there I we can, go. Okay. Okay, great. Um, and then when, you, when he gets back, you can invite him back in. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I'll do that. So um, at the, the national... Um, conference for, for that that more professors attend you'll now see um, very regularly people who have just left uh, they just finished their PhD in classics and they started teaching at a high school and they learned about speaking Latin and now they're there telling everybody how fantastic it is you know like and how useful it is so it's kind of that that that's been a um, an, an interesting um, thing to see how that is catching on. But at the same time, a lot of professors, you know, they, it's, it's, it's not there's that pushback. They, there's, there's pushback. pushback. And a lot of there's that comes from, pushback. you know, there, there, there are two things that often happen. Um, the most common I would say is one, uh, oh, that's just not for me. Right. Like, uh, that's just not for me. That's okay. You can do it. And that's great. I'm like, but that's scary. And it's not for me. Some, some professors will outright say that it's scary. Most of them probably wouldn't. Um, yeah, well, again, those that. ones, I would say they, they probably have, they, they probably don't like talking to a lot of people in, in general. As, as I've probably, experienced probably. at yes. many of these conferences, I'm like, I don't know if it's the Latin that's holding you back here. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And so that's the one thing. And the other thing that often, um, it will feel like it's, it's, it's like learning a new skill. 
it's like that's kind of admitting that you don't know how to do it. Yeah. Um, so again, it is about that that feeling of um, you know it's, I don't they that they've been doing this. This is their profession. Now yeah. they are having to admit that they can't do this, and they're gonna sound you know that they're gonna struggle. And this is one of the things that when we do Latin immersion events with adults, right? So that's something that Andrew and I've done um, many times, right? As part of Salvi. Um, and I think like Claire's also taught adults. So this is the thing is that the one thing that we always start with is saying, um, we know that you know Latin, right? This, that nobody is think Nobody will think that somebody in this room does not know Latin. We know that you know it. But for this next week, if they're a beginner, right, you are going to... All right, so we got interrupted there. But Ilsa, you were talking about uh, um, academics now, professor level, uh, people who've dedicated their lives to this language. And now we are, you are upturning the industry, the field of study, by saying spoken Latin is an actual thing. So what's happening in in that uh, area of things? Yeah, so you have, um, at least in my department, a lot of the professors will just say it's not their thing. Um, nobody has looked at me and said that's ridiculous. Um, you know, uh, they will, they'll, they'll, rec- they, they don't, won't question it to my face. At least I don't know if they, they're doing it behind my back, but they, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they go like, I don't know what that else is up to. Um, but. <laughs> Um, right yeah, now, but then you're, just... you're at your field, your, your department head goes, her class size is huge and they're mm-hmm. all still in class paying tuition. So right. shut yeah, up so and I, listen to her. Exactly. Yep. So right now, I think it's good. And actually, I think that um, my class size has increased by three. So um, mm-hmm. I now have three extra students. They actually gave me a bigger classroom. They changed my classroom and nobody oh, talked wow. to me about it, but they just gave me a bigger classroom. So I, I don't know how that happened, but I'm very happy about it. Um, so <laughs> it's great. But no, so they'll, you know, it's often this lack of confidence um, and this unwillingness to to try that new thing because they, mm-hmm. they're like, I'm already yeah. fine, right? And that's not yeah. right. For they, a lot of them know, know Latin very well. A lot of my professors know Latin very well, but they, um, I think that a lot of them don't think that it's going to help them in any way to speak it. Because they're, they're just like, but I won't speak it. Why? Yeah. Like, why would right. they ever use it? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And if they already know it so well, how do they think they can know it better? Exactly. Right. right. Um, <laughs> yes. And, um, oh, yeah. yes. So that's yeah. the one thing. And I think uh, there's just a lot of, it, a lot of it is probably coming from that insecurity of, but now I have to, um, you know, learn how to do that when I've been learning this language for so long. And um, I was talking about these Latin immersion events where you're working with adults and they are, it's basically for beginners, you're sitting there for the immersion events that we do, you're there for six days where you speak only Latin mm-hmm. and um, you're an adult with an adult brain and you want to say adult things. You're not going to say, oh, that cup is pretty. That's right. Don't say that when you're sitting down at breakfast, you want to talk about this weird dream you just had, like last yep. night, you know, or something, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or like, oh yeah, the springs in the bed are just like not horrible with my back, <laughs> you know, or right. whatever. Yeah. You want to talk about that because you're an adult, but now you're sitting there as an adult, and you have to 
speak in sentences that are only apt for, you know, four-year-olds to six-year-olds. Right. That's, that's, that's the level of vocabulary you have ready at hand. Right. Um, cup, a, pretty. Right. And, and picking, the, pick, picking this up and saying, what is this? Right. And so you're go- you're going through like a quasi adult amnesia phase where you're picking up like a fork and going, what is this? Right. I always, I always say that like beginning spoken Latin at any stage is like going back to preschool. Yeah. And I frequently like I feel like I personally act like a kindergarten teacher sometimes mm. in class because I'm asking them very basic things. I'm asking them. Like, right, like, Esne Roma in Gallia. Yeah. Obviously, it's not. But, you know, like, so, yeah, like, the, the simplicity of speech can, I think, be frustrating for the adult brain. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, but, I mean, Latin them. gives them, they're, they're Latin as a second language, LSL, right? There you go. Mm, Love it. Love the, it. Uh, I mean, being able to take that step, there is something to be said about that. So, in in your teachings... Um, how do you progress from that childhood sort of like, haha, okay, this is so fun. What is this? What is this thing in my hand to like actual talking about like, oh, my back is terrible because, well, I, I tried to do, well, I tried to sleep and these springs were terrible. Yeah. So, so Andrew and, and well, Clara has spoken mm-hmm. a lot about this and I don't know if Andrew spoke about it, but he has talked about it and other things many times. It's just a lot of input, right? Listening. Right. To, and that's so great. So like Komodo Dikitu, mm-hmm. the podcast that Claire had mentioned earlier, um, was really the first of its kind where they're mm-hmm. just chatting, three people just chatting. And they started in 2016. Um, mm-hmm. They are no longer doing their podcast. But I was wondering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are other ones that have picked up like Satura Langs um, and so forth. That, you know, and they're, they have different. Latanitas Anami Causa. They're pretty yes. cool. Yeah, you know, like, I heard that they're I've heard nice. that name before. Um, yeah, somewhere. Um, they are. So, yeah, so they, um, you know, that, that's the, that's what the, one of the biggest ways, because when you can listen to uh, people having a conversation, right, in dialogue, it's much more comprehensible than listening to one person um, either read or even speak, you know, like uh, just give a monologue. It's just way more comprehensible when there are three people or two people talking and um, easier to follow. Sir, are you taking over from the previous podcasting generation? Is that what you're saying? You, 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 you're saying that there's going to be input, but you've now you're mentioning your podcast and it's like there's a time warp going on. How can they listen to the podcast? What's giving you that input that you're able to generate this content for other people? Right. I mean, like, I think that, that that's a that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I learned a lot from podcasts because I started speaking in 2016. So I listened to Cuomodo Dikitur and uh, Pilologia Perennis and Satura Langs, Keitaraque, uh, right? Like, that exists. But a lot of people got good at Latin but by just reading a ton of Latin, yes. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, read before before audio resource is really a thing. And of course, there were also the Nunti Latini Radio Ponici, right? Oh, like, that existed, and, right? So good. A generation-defining audio source, right? Pretty and much. Really, it honestly, <laughs> it was. It was. And it's super great. And, like, that existed. And before that existed, right, when you look at Latin, how it was passed down for from the 18th, 19th, 20th century, it was just a lot lot of reading and then like that reading helped you and then you gave people more reading and so on and so forth so that that helped a lot um now like i mean go ahead Elsa, sorry. sorry one of the so when i um when i've taught online before for people that never spoken before um i i once had a group of people 
um, about five of them. And one person has used Lingua Latina, the book that we use, mm -hmm. and he's taught with it, but he doesn't speak. He's never spoken, but he mm -hmm. teaches with this book. So he knows the book really well. And um, I mean, this is not very scientific because I don't have a control for this, but he was the best speaker right off the bat. Like he, I was, I was like, I don't know if you belong in this class um, yeah. because he was already so far along and I definitely contributed to just reading that book. And he I had the most that, input. Yeah. You get oh, yeah. a lot of input. That's, um, you know, it's, it's easy enough to understand, right. When you start from the beginning to end, you can really just get so much out of it. Um, and so that, that was actually one of my fears about using this book with complete beginners was that I know that when people have done some Latin and they take up this book, they're like, oh, this is amazing. Like yeah. I understand so much and I'm getting so, so much better at this. Um, and I was a bit afraid using it with complete beginners if that would be the same thing. Um, and I'm so happy that, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's not the same thing, but it's, it's, it's very much suited to beginners. So that's, yeah. that's been great. But so, yeah, just a lot of, a lot of input and, um, yeah, like then as Claire also mentioned, trying to write, you're just writing things down. It doesn't have to be perfect. You just, yeah, if like your grammar's not perfect, it's fine. Just exactly. getting that output yeah. practice and talking to yourself. You know, um, I, I tell in, in foreign languages, uh, usually yes. do it out of earshot, though, is what I would sort of recommend. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. Yeah, I've been <laughs> caught a couple times and it's not <laughs> you have? Oh, yeah. like someone's like, I mean, not usually by usually by people who are close to me, usually by family members or close friends. But I'm walking around the house talking in Latin or Greek and someone's like, what are you doing? Listen, well, it's, it was easy once like a Bluetooth headphones became a thing. Then you right. could almost cover it up. But then then you're listening. It's like, I'm not actually having a phone call conversation. I, mean, I still right. have to fake it. And it's very difficult <laughs> to fake it because now you're faking two things, right? You're faking the conversation. You're faking with the headphones in. Now you're being yeah. distracted by your own distraction sort of thing. <laughs> right, exactly. I've, I've talked to myself before in Latin in my classroom. I had my administrator walk in. Oh, right. <laughs> and that, 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 that was a funny that was a funny experience amazing. Yeah. but yeah i mean like um, you you have to you have to give students input before you can expect any output right so like but if i'm ever gonna have a conversation with students i am modeling first what we're doing ahead of that so recently to, to finish up this past semester we had just hit the part where we we're talking about our morning routines in latin so we're using some past tense structure and we're also using a, the verb uh, soleo to be accustomed to or to usually do something right so like it's super common and we're talking about what we do in our mornings right but i'm not going to say hey tell me what you do in your mornings without first giving them some support about how to talk about their mornings so i talk about what i do in my mornings first and i mm -hmm. and i talk to them about like i do this and then i do this and they're like wait a minute you put your socks on before your pants magister what is that and i'm like yes i do that is what <laughs> so i do they get, they get caught on the way down exactly <laughs> right and so yeah. like that's that's what i'm saying so like i and this, so but and if, if there's any ever any point that i can make a situation where there could be a controversy, a low stakes controversy or a, right. a small hiccup or something that could be, we can joke about or talk about. That's something I try to introduce. So like um, the whole, do you put your cereal in first or your milk in first? Which one do you do? Right. And that is a, that's a low stakes controversy that has very limited amount of vocab that people are very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, there are the people will be like, no, you always put milk in first. Right. Primum lac is the Right. And then the people are like, 
no, no. First, carrialias un imponenda, right? First, you gotta put those in, and you can use that structure, and you got people be like, mm -mm, no, no, yes, no, like, and, and so on and so forth, and you'll come to a head eventually. But the point is that 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 sort of low stakes controversy fuels conversation, and they forget. And they forget that they're learning. They forget they're learning. They're just sitting there arguing in the target language about which one's more important. But it's not about human rights. It's not about something that is so so. It's not about you know these things that are so deeply personal and deeply important. It's about things that really don't matter but are kind of fun to be upset about. Yeah. The, well, so how do you say Cheerios in Latin? A great question. <laughs> I mean, like I would just say Kerialia nomine Cheerios. That's what I would right. say, <laughs> right? I would. There are certain words that you just you don't translate. Brand names, right? You don't really translate. Um, place names, like like if you're going to have like Home Depot or Lowe's, right, or whatever. I'm just thinking those are examples that come to mind. Like if you're talking about any sort of chain walmart i'm not gonna walmart. say like wallace martos that's ridiculous right like um <laughs> I, i'm also not gonna say like murus mars which is like wall and mars okay, right? like, so no, like not, i'm not doing that right i'm like i'm not doing that either right i think that at that point you just say like a taberna or a pantopolium like a, a place where you can buy a lot of stuff called walmart right right because okay. that's what everyone does in every modern language right they don't for facebook they say facebook right for for twitter they say twitter very few languages actually translate it into something Directly of their own language them. exactly yeah. so that's I, just I, yeah i've had the same thing with uh chinese because at the lower levels they would just use the, the the english word for it but then there was i think it was the uh the word for internet it's wang chang so mm -hmm. you're on the internet but then they also transliterate it go into netta and yeah, going, mm. but internet is three different characters. I don't know. Wang Shang, right. I know. And I'm going, pick one. <laughs> right. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In Spanish, to say that you're live, right? Like if you're on Facebook and you're live, you can say en vivo, but more often than not, they just say live. Live. Okay. Right. We're, we're, we're live, right? They'll say it in Spanish, like, you know, somos or estamos live, right? Um, but, but en vivo is the proper way to say it, just like this sort of situation. And I think that that's part of a retaining a, like a purity of language situation where it's like, this is what we would say in our language, but because of usage, right? right Interneta or, or live becomes just more common. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the infiltration yeah. of English into every language across the world, which is what Latin did before, right. wasn't it? Yeah. 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 You're not wrong. It, so in terms of purism, you've mentioned purist view. This is actually, a, I mean, I, I, you're, you're doing spoken Latin, spoken Greek uh, uh, as well. Is there still a purity? I mean, Ilsa, you Ooh. mentioned this sort of how there was sort of a pushback as well with the, the hitting yeah, the academics with the spoken. Yeah. How can is you it, talk about hard questions? Things? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. is there still sort of that purest view of what Latin is? And the follow-up question to that, is it a hard C or is it a modern Italian soft C? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Mm. Well, I'll say for the hard C and the soft C, the ch versus k, it's about whatever you want to do. But just be, I say, I say pick a pronunciation schema and stay consistent within it. Right. So if you say, if you say, I can't, I can't even think of a word with C in it now. Someone help Principatio. me. Principatio. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Cerealia or Cerealia, right? If you say Cerealia, say Cerealia. Say, if you say Cerealia, or Princeps versus Princeps, right? Right. Pick one, stay consistent. That's fine. Yeah, right. uh, I and also, depending on what kind of Latin you tend to read. I mean, if you're reading yes. a lot of ecclesiastical Latin, it might make more sense to use 
an ecclesiastical pronunciation. Especially um, in poetry. Yeah, right. Where the exactly. sound is so important. Yeah. Right, right. So, but I mean, it's it's ultimately up to you. And I think, yeah, like uh, one thing, I don't know, personally, I, when I'm reading later Latin, I try to use an ecclesiastical accent. When I'm mm-hmm. reading Latin inscriptions that are, you know, later, I'll try to use ecclesiastical. When I'm reading um, more classical Latin, I try to use classical. Um, yeah. So what would the big differences be? Uh, well, you have the the hard verse soft C um, and G and G. Yeah. Yep, yep. And then you have um, so the the AE, which is like Puelai, right, becomes Puele. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, the kind of vowel TI. It's uh, is like ses, so you have like etiam um, instead of etiam. Um, and then uh, GN Magnus becomes Magnus. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So there's yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm there's like I'm sure there's v. others. I'm not thinking of and yeah. yeah and v, and is, v, v is is, is yeah. fricative and not a semi vowel. Right. Yeah. It's right. Like, right. V, yeah. V instead of what? Vini vidi vici or is it vini vidi vici? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that also. Oh, sorry, Elsa. No, go. I was, no, I was going to say that also goes sort of interest in an interesting way goes back to the question of purity, which I think is very vexed. But um, I mean, I think that at least for us three, I would say, I don't want to speak for you too, but I think this is accurate that, you know, we try our best to um, be accurate, to be as accurate as possible um, in the, type of Latin that we are trying to model. So right. if we are trying to model, you know, medieval Latin, for example, then we would use that idiom. Often we're trying to model um, classical Latin. And so we are trying our best, but we also realize that we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And ultimately making a few mistakes isn't going to corrupt people's minds. I mean, you're not going to ruin. Yeah. yeah. And that is something that, you know, also that second language research tells us about how people acquire languages is that, you know, in general, people are able to learn, hear a few mistakes and and not have it impact their language learning and understanding very yeah, much. Yeah. Obviously, if, if things don't make sense at all, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. Um, but they but, can be even taught the wrong thing and then retaught the right thing and the right mm-hmm. thing will stay. Right. Mm-hmm. We know, we know that errors don't fossilize is the only way to do things. So, right. yeah. So, and, sorry, with regard to purity please. of like, so idiom and so forth, we try to be as, as accurate as possible. So we, we personally all read a lot of Latin, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try to like, when we are um comp- thinking about it or speaking to each other. Well, not really when we're speaking to each other because we're just chatting. But when we are, you know, forming Latin in our own separate lives, we will look things up. Like we will look, oh, how do I mm-hmm. say that? Or can I can I say that I have habere, right? Can I say I habeo is skill? Can you say that? Mm-hmm. You know, we will we will look that up, see if that is attested, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes there are words and things that, um, you know, we want to say that there is just it's not maybe idioms um, specifically, but that definitely comes up. But there are just words that they didn't have, or at least mm-hmm. that we don't know about. There are definitely words they didn't have, like they didn't have the word for plastic. That's right. Like, so we well, have, sort of. Yes, sort of. Right. They not our type of plastic. plastic. Not our type of plastic. Not our type of plastic. Right. So <laughs> um, that because that is obviously Greek, but we just don't yes. have that. What 
that's often the this where we have to kind of use our best educated mm-hmm. guesses as to how they would have said it, right? Um, and often we'll just circumlocute, right? That's kind right. of what that is. Yeah. But um, and depending on things like how do you even say mental representation in in in, in Latin, <laughs> right? right? Uh, it's re- it would be imago. Like it's an yeah. image. Imago lingua. Imago specifically yeah. refers to like a mental image um, often. And so, yes, you can say that. But if I just say imago without like Who's... particular context. Could mean image. Imago can also could, be a ghost. Could be a ghost. Yeah. yeah. Could be a ghost. Right. Think about languages doing ghosts. Could be a statue. Love it. I mean, like it could, yeah. Could be a statue of a ghost. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, we, so we just try to, um, you know, we try to, to be very <clears throat> deliberate in our own right. learning. To make sure that we are, um, you know, that our, and it's really for us a lot of that time, you know, it's, we want to make sure that we have a good idea of how to say that. Right. Yeah. No, I. Forcing it upon other people. It's just a bug. Yeah. And I want to. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. No, I was going to speak about in in that same vein of of what both of them had said, also talking about neologisms to a certain degree. Is that like as much as possible, if we can repurpose an ancient thing to talk about a new thing, we'll do that. Much as much as how the word car comes from carriage, right? No one's no one's hanging around in carriages anymore. But (laughs) as much as as much as they used to, right? But people do have cars, and so like we use the word raida in Latin, which means carriage, a horse-drawn carriage, to mean car now because it's the sort of same repurposing. So if you can repurpose something that already exists anciently, so that's in the example of plastic. Plastic referred to the skill of modeling or molding in Latin. They were Vitruvius, the architect, um, the person who writes about architecture, talks about how pla- you can also use it as a substantive noun, plasticus, a person who is a who is a sculptor, right? right. Um, because plasticon ultimately comes from Greek plastain to make in some sort of way, right? So we can use we can say something as plasticum right why not they already had it it is molded it is modeled in some way so why can't we use that to talk about something that's now plastic right, right. Mm-hmm. so this is the repurposing of ancient ideas to meet modern notions is something that has happened with latin through medieval renaissance all the way up to now and it's sort of something we also try to model in our neologistic pursuits for a car, wouldn't you just? What about automobile? Or is that too many syllables? So yeah, if you were gonna say so to say automobile, you would probably use the Greek autokinetum, which also okay. exists in modern Greek, um, I, as far as I understand it, and it just means it moves on its own, right? right. Just like an automobile, right? Um, because automobile also is sort of a, a chimera word because it comes from Greek and Latin. Autos is autos is Greek and mo. Mobilis is Latin, so they split together, they come together and become automobile. Um, And as much as possible, at least in my own speech, I try to avoid chimeras of of language. I try to use just Greek or just Latin and not smash them together. So that's why I would say autokinetum. Words, not sentences. Yes, I also also try to avoid smashing Greek and Latin sentences together while I'm speaking at the same time, but you never know. I mean, Cicero did that sometimes. Sounds like purism another way. That's true, right? So, Ilsa, yeah, yeah. you you mentioned that people, uh, well, you three, uh, tend to read a lot of Latin. Like, it, you kind of conjure up this image that you basically sit around reading Latin or Greek all the time. I what, wish what's I did. A... <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's what's the, the um, what is the sort of a day in the life of your development as, uh, I mean, not just development, but your, your reading? Because if you're getting to such a level of, uh, Latin proficiency that you're able to speak it, you talked about input. 
what books are you reading? Um, Latin, Greek, mm. uh, is, mm. not, can't be too modern of stuff. And I mean, you can only read Cat in the Hat so many times before you're like, <laughs> gotta break out of this children's mold. <laughs> what are you guys reading these days to, um, to keep your brains active in the, in the languages? So I'll go first, um, so because I'm teaching with Lingua Latina, I, I do read that a lot. I also make recordings for my students. So um, that often takes like as many takes to get it right uh, because of, you know, ambulance would pass by or, or um, you know, whatever reason. And then so I'm, I'm reading that a lot. I also try to listen. There's an app called Legentipus done by... Oh, I was going to mention Legentipus. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, go for it. It's good. It's good. Um, they, it's a, it, it costs money. It's done by um, Latinitium, right? It's uh, Daniel Peterson and his wife. Um, they live in Sweden. Um, they form Latinitium and they've made this app. It's amazing. Um, there are a lot of things that you can do through it. A lot of it is um, there, are, there are audiobooks, but there are also... Um, you know, follow alongs. You can read the Latin as they as, mm-hmm. as Daniel most often, but there are new, now also new voices on there. Um, reads it and it, like the, all their pronunci- pronunciations are pretty fantastic and and, and good. Um, so I do that often when I'm just walking to um, to classes, and um, obviously reading a lot with my students. Just like so, very basic things. Like sometimes, you know, a lot of people think if you're not reading. The difficult stuff you're not learning, right? Because you know it already. But really, Livy, Aeneid. <laughs> yes, exactly, right. But the thing is that when when you're reading, re- even repeatedly the same, like let's say easy to me readings, I am still getting something out of it every time because that those structures are just solidifying over and over again, right? Like we have this the the beauty of learning a modern language is that you actually get that automatically if you just watch a show in Spanish, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You don't have to rewatch the same episode to get the same type of structures or even the same sentences over and over again because that will just kind of happen naturally. So, you know, that since we don't necessarily have that unless we listen to podcasts, which are now more abundant, thank goodness. But, um, you know, that is a way to do that. It's just listening and, and re-listening. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I do that, and then obviously for my program, I have to read a lot of of Latin. Mm-hmm. But what that that looks like now is not having to look up the you know every time I see tamen, which means however, versus tandem, which means finally. I don't have to look that up anymore because I already know. But <laughs> yeah. when that I was a big up, one for me when I, like, I started. Yeah, like third or fourth year of like studying Latin, every single time there's just two words, but I could not remember the difference, and I had to mm-hmm. look them up in the dictionary every single time. I don't have to do that anymore. So what I can now do is I'm reading, you know, Plautus for class, and I I go, ooh, that is a very cool thing to say. Like he'll say he said some. Oh my gosh, this is so funny. He said, um, "Oh, you're stupid beyond your years, like yeah. beyond your age." <laughs> Right, like, you, like your age is not a good reason to be this dumb. It was just funny. Like, it wasn't yeah. that, like anything. It was just amazing that you know somebody had said that. So now I can go, I can read that. I immediately understand it. So it's even funnier, right? Um, and I can, I can go. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a funny saying. I mean, I don't foresee myself ever using that, but it is funny, right? And if I see other structures now, I, it's so much easier to to recognize that this would be useful 
in my own speaking. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I'm just answering everything for everyone. I'm sorry. No, I mean, that's <laughs> totally accurate for me as well. Like, I, I also, I would say a lot of what Ilsa just said, um, I agree with. And I also read a lot of Lingua Latina because I'm reading with my students. Um, like I was saying before, I listen to it a lot, especially the later chapters. And there's also another volume, Roma Eterna, which um, has, so has, you know, adapted Livy and Virgil um in it and that's something that I have read a lot in the past but honestly I and I hate to say this but it's not super compelling for me and I think that's a big that's a big thing too is that it has to be compelling so the things yeah. that I read that as like it has to be interesting it has to be fun so things that I read for fun are often um the things that I'm actually like working on in my research um so I read a lot of later Latin, but that also draws me to a lot of early Latin because they're referencing Cicero in the 16th century or, um, you know, Plato or whoever it is. So then I go back to that text and I read that. So it's a lot of that. Um, I would like to do a little bit more kind of pleasure reading in Latin and Greek that's not related to my research, even if I do enjoy my research. But right now it's mostly focused on my teaching and research. Mm. What would be pleasure reading in Latin? I mean, anything what you enjoy, you enjoy, I think like it could be just I'm going to pick up, you know, Erasmus's letters today and I'm going to read them. I'm going to pick up um, Plautus and I'm going to read it, whatever it is, anything that that is enjoyable. And um, and and there's also I mean, there's Harry Potter in Latin. There's Seneca's letters, Seneca's letters, Um, whatever it is that you enjoy. That's not necessarily, you know, I would say pleasure reading, even if I enjoy my research is separate from my research, is, right. you know, separate from my work is really more like leisure reading. It's otium. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So nobody's going to ask me if I, if I did do the homework, this is not right. homework. It's just, yeah, I, I decided I wanted to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I read lots of things um, in, and they often vary. Right. Um, so, I find myself reading a lot more prose than poetry in general, just because poetry I find is something you should be able to sit with and contemplate and sort of digest. And I don't always have that time in my day to be able to do that. Um, So I often find myself reading prose where the message is more plainly stated or more plainly written. Um, But that said, it, it varies greatly from, I mean, I've read Lingua Latina almost, I think 36 times now. For my own reading, not including the teaching that I've done for myself. So I've moved on right. from Lingua Latina. I'm kind of done with it. Um, I still use it for teaching, but I, I've read it a lot. And part of it was like, I, I said this at a uh, conference in October. Is like, I'm I'm at my heart, I was I grew up as a gamer. I have no problem grinding to get to the next level, right? So, <laughs> exactly. Like, I have no problem. Like, I, I read Lingua Latina. Reading Lingua Latina 36 times sounds to most like a a form of torture right because like even if you do enjoy the book like reading the same thing over and over again and that's it right it's not something that might be pleasurable for most people but it did a a lot for my fluency right and it did a lot for my ability to digest other things that i enjoy more right and the later chapters of lingua latina actually are quite great i think they're fun i think they're um, fun yeah the early ones if i if i have to read roma natalia one more time i might eat my shoe but (laughs) i will 100 percent 
percent read the later chapters with some joy. It's a really good book. Um, mm-hmm. But which, which book is this? Ilsa, this is this is uh, this is the book yeah. Lingua Latina okay. per se, illustrata by Hans Orberg. It's sort of if you go into spoken Latin circles, it's almost the number one book that everyone will be like, go to this first. Or if anyone's like, I don't know Latin, well, how do I do it? And they go, go to this first. It is, I think, one of the best, especially books for autodidacts for okay. to be able to teach themselves okay. Latin. We, we always joke um, about. Have you heard about the good book? Right. Lingua Latina, <laughs> per se, Lushana. Right, yes. <laughs> the, good, the good word of Hans Orberg, right? Um, and so, um, but I, these days, I am sort of picking up, um, I love Aulus Gellius a lot. Um, Aulus Gellius wrote a miscellany. What's nice about that is that you can read it out of sequence. He has like, he has books that have like 20 or 30 chapters in them, and each chapter is about a different thing. So like, his first chapter is how we know how tall Hercules was. Right. And he go and he goes through. It's so great. It's he goes through and he says, like, so here's what these mathematicians did. They measured out like a stadium and then they they measured out how long it took him to run it. And they and they were like, so based on that, his stride must have been this. And therefore, he was this height. Boom. Hercules was this tall. Right. But in the same in the same miscellany, he might also have something about like the story of um, Bucephalus, right? The horse of Alexander the Great. And you get to read this really like honestly moving piece about how Bucephalus saved Alexander the Great from certain death. But sacrificed himself to do so um and like there's this and you also at the same word he might be like here's this word that's used in latin so he talked about the most recent work i read actually was in a class with students and since i teach through Locke and i teach with adults uh, we do a lot of reading classes and so this is an opportunity also for me to dive into things that's like i've always wanted to read this so i'll read it read it ahead of teaching this class um we read on um the martin luther king day Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we read um, what Romans had to say about the word humanitas, right? Mm-hmm. Because humanitas, humanity to us, means something different than it did to Romans, um, sort of, right? So the word humanitas, the word humanity for the plebs meant what it means for us, philanthropy, goodness, love of human beings, right? But for elite Romans meant education, the humanities, right? It meant education. So, but that distinction existed then of like the, the hoi polloi were like, ah, yes, you know, um, loving your fellow person, right? But the elite were like, no, humanity is found in education and in literature and philosophy and blah, 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 right? That's where you find humanity, um, which could be sort of a gatekeeping idea of what humanity can be. Um, and that dichotomy existed even then. And so like Aulus Gellius has tons of really interesting stuff to read and if you don't if you aren't interested in something he's talking about you can just skip the chapter and keep going and that's okay um they're short yeah they're usually some some of them can extend for a couple of pages but in general that's what i read or i'll read um i like reading cicero a lot cicero's my favorite author so i like reading his letters especially i love reading his personal correspondence and seeing what he what what his what his daily conversations were with his (laughs) bros right um you read it and you're like wow you really are a horrible person right or so pretty (laughs) right yeah well, or, like, or was he yeah. really that horrible? Oh, uh, yeah. there are moments. I mean, there, there, are, there, there's definitely been worse people. It's more sometimes he'll say something, and it's like, it's more, I am just the best thing that's ever happened to the world. That's right. That's, um, he's super self absorbed. Yeah. Like, that's why yeah. I love like that. One of my favorite things to read is Petrarch's letter. Oh letter yeah, he had two letters to yeah. Cicero. 
where he finds Cicero's letters in, you know, the 14th century. And he's just like, I realize now that you're kind of an asshole. And right. <laughs> yes. No, that's, that's like seriously. It's so it good. And then the second letter, he's like, actually, sorry, I was being a little mean. Like, maybe I judged you harshly. But it's really fun because he's both he's both mimicking, he's imitating, not mimicking, but imitating Cicero, imitating Cicero's style and his letters while criticizing him. And it's yeah. just... It's, it's super good. I also love that the Petrarch's letter where he he chastises him for getting killed. Yeah. Right? He said he says, "Hey, you should have butt out of politics and written more philosophy. Your philosophy, great. You died. No one cares about what you did then, but your philosophy was fantastic. You could have had 20 more good years of philosophy that you could have written and you didn't. You're a dumbass. Get out, Cicero." And that's what Petrarch says. Right? It's really it's really funny. It's really funny. It is. Um, but so like, I, I also pick up Petrarch or Erasmus or, um, really, really anything that I have on my bedside table or I'll go through my bookshelf and I'll be like, what's the thing that I've been meaning to read or want to read today? And I'll just pick the thing and I'll just pick it up and start reading. Are um, you able to read fluently? Like, uh, you're not looking up words along the way or is, um, or is it like a strain to get through sort of thing? So it depends on the work, but generally I can fluently read most of the things I pick up. I might have to work, look up like one out of 150 words. Right. Um, or a word might be used in a very specific usage. Like, so for instance, I might be like, oh, that, that, I usually think that word means this. And then I'm like, oh, in a financial context, it means this. Yeah. Or in a judicial context, it means mm-hmm. this. Right. And so, like, usually I can deduce that from context, but every so often I'll use that as an opportunity to also sort of do some research on why that word means that. Right. Um, and that is something that is really compelling for me. Um, but it might not be compelling for everybody and that's okay. So, um, typically I'm, I'm, I'm reaching a point in my Latin fluency because of the amount of work I've put in over the past few years that I am reading at a similar rate to how I read English. Right. Which is really Uh, joyful. So Andrew, have you ever gone through the gauntlet of uh, PhD preparation studies to do the, those reading lists? Re- reading lists. So um, I've I've read not all of, but I've read some of what's on some of the PhD lists for fun for my own Latin. Um, I have not gone to a PhD program. I've I've thought about doing a PhD program, but right now I don't know if that's exactly how I want what I want to pursue. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why I would enjoy it. There's a lot of reasons why I might not enjoy it. Um, and I really do love teaching and I really do love teaching high school. Um, and there, there were occasions in my past in Latin where my lack of a having of a PhD and my lack of desire to get one was used as a reason to say that what I was not, what I was saying and doing wasn't legitimate. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is, but he's, he's literally taught PhDs. Yes. There right. have been, there have been professors in our classes. I have done curriculum consultation for colleges. I've done curriculum consultation for high schools. Like, um, I don't know that, I mean, I'm not saying that the reason people get their PhDs is to have the letters after their name. I'm not saying that's why, because I have two Some really them. awesome people Some right here do. who are, there are people who do, but these, I have two awesome people right here who are not doing it for that reason. Right. Yeah. But there are people who do that for that reason. I don't, first of all, I don't need that. I don't need that to validate me um, for my personal situation. And I don't know that the things that I would get out of the PhD program would be the things that I would meet the goals of what I want to do. You know what I mean? I can say this. So in my program, I have to, you know, there's a reading list and then I, I have to go write an exam, a Latin translation exam, and they can give me any Latin um, that is found in, you know, in that entire list. And it's a, it's, 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 you know, it's a significant. It's a substantial list. Yes, no, Uh, definitely. Which list, uh, sorry, which university list are are you using? 
Boston University because that's where okay. I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, it's so I did. I wrote my exam actually a year ago now, and um, I so I took about two weeks to study for it because over break. That's right? it. I, well, you like, took two so, weeks to study for a translation <laughs> exam in Latin. But that does mean that does mean. I mean, that's why I really wanted to get through the list. Okay, I really, really, really did. But I just you don't have the amount of time that you think you have as a as a PhD student. You have a very little extra time to put into that. So it was really over break that I had that time, and it was you know it's, it's like Christmas. You know, I have a family. You know, um, so. I took about two weeks. Andrew did some of the reading with me, um, you know, and that's something fun that we can just do together as well. And so I went and I wrote the exam. Um, and the way that it's set up here, at least, is that they give you three prose passages and three um, poetry passages. And you have to choose two of, you know, each. Those are, ours are the same. Yeah. Oh, great. Mm, right. great. Yeah. And then um, and so then you just write that. So I on the on the actual exam, what I had read in those two weeks or, you know, was there was one passage which I had read um, and the others, I some of them I'd never even seen before. Uh, most of them there was. So in the poetry, there was one that I um, one section that I'd seen before uh, and the two that I hadn't. And for the prose, there was one that I had actually read the two in those two weeks and two that I'd never seen before. And um, I mean, it was it was really it was not it was easy to translate right like it wasn't difficult i, I did it two weeks preparation uh, one, yeah it was easy because it's also all of the preparation before though right know? it's like, it's all the right. it's all yeah it's not just those it was really prep. actually six years of prep but it was just those i didn't i hadn't read everything on the list even in my you know even in the whatever how many years i've been doing latin but um like I, I translated lucretius and even though i didn't translate so lucretius is, there's a lot of philosophy in there so um Inane, for example, is like a void. I didn't translate like, in, but in the in his poetry and his philosophy, these words have specific meanings. Now, I did never took a Lucretius course, and I've never. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I tried to avoid doing Lucretius because it's the philosophy and poetry in one, um, and I didn't have the time. I had two weeks, so um, I. I, but I, I had to translate that because I the Horace was filled with nautical terms and I don't even know what those are in English, so I avoided that. Uh, so <laughs> right. I did the Lucretius, right? And um, like the Latin was 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 correct, right? I think I missed frost or something like that. But the Latin was correct. It was just that I didn't use the the philosophical terms, right? But the professor can can see that in that. So, but I passed, like easily passed, right? Um, and Andrew has put in, not only has he been doing Latin for longer, he has, uh, he's put in more work than I have into his Latin, right? And so um, he could easily, like, pass that. That wouldn't be a problem for him. I, I am not saying that she is. Let's let, let this I be am. known, right? Like, right, to be fair, uh, I've watched your, your gaming vids. Uh, you... <laughs> right? Right. And I was I was actually shocked. I was like, well, I think the first one, it was the one that you were playing Sims and Andrew yeah. you started off very staccato, like you were very slow going. And then all of a sudden you start playing the game and it was just like rapid fire Latin. I'm going, holy <laughs> shit, the guy actually speaks it. Uh, it was, 
<laughs> and you have like how many videos of those that your whole gaming series, uh, and then yeah. you're doing your own YouTube shorts and everything. So, uh, no, it's, uh, you, you can tell that you, ca- you kind of know the language. Yeah. I, something about a little, it. Just like yeah. a little bit, you know, just like, yeah, minimal. Yeah. Hobby. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, Claire, so you're reading the same sort of stuff then with your PhD preference. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the lists compare, but I would imagine there, you know, there's some overlap. It depends on the program, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty long list and I too have not read, um, everything on the list, but I passed my exams, um, uh, in 2021. So I, like also didn't do all that much prep that was specifically for the exams. I would say the Greek ones a little bit more because my Greek, you know, at, at that point was definitely not um, as strong as my Latin. Oh, and so I don't even know if it still is. The, the vocabulary. For yeah. Greek. The vocabulary is a real struggle. And it, yeah, it, it, it for me, I mean, still I can struggle. There's some texts that I do still struggle with. Um, so I did a little bit more prep for that for sure. Um, but for the Latin one, I also didn't do a ton of like reading beforehand. Um, and... well, it sounds like all three of you are sort of doing a lot of Latin outside of your own studies sort of thing, yeah. especially yeah. Ilsa yeah. and Claire, you, you two sort of just enjoy reading Latin and yeah. then you get the PhD list. You're like, Oh, something else to look at for a little while, something new to read. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's but cool. again, I mean, I, I haven't read everything on the list, but it's like once I think it's just right. Like we were saying, the amount of prep that goes in before when you're speaking and you're listening and you're reading stuff for fun that transfers to being able to see something at sight and translate it pretty accurately. And yeah, like I definitely made mistakes, um, I'm sure. But me too. Yeah, it turned so- out OK. Favorite author, uh, Andrew, you mentioned, uh, I forgot already. Cicero. In prose, it's Cicero. In poetry, it's Ovid. Right on. Sure. Uh, Claire? Ooh, this is a hard, because so I, the stuff that I work on is, is later now, but I think that, like, in terms of classical, I'm just going to go with classical authors. Um, in terms of classical authors, um, Sallust is my favorite prose author in Latin. Sallust and is awesome. Sallust is awesome. I love, I love Sallust. Sallust. Like, he's like a close second it. for me. So he's, good. He's so, he's, I, I just, yeah, I love it. Um, and it's really hard in poetry, but, and I, I go back and forth on things all the time. I don't know. I'm also, I've become more of an Ovid fan recently. Um, so I might have to choose Ovid over Virgil, but... I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> so a toss up between a uh, uh, Virgil I mean, and Ovid. And but there's so many good poets too. It's like I really enjoy mm. reading Catullus. I really enjoy reading, you know, Ovid. I enjoy even reading mm. Statius Marshall. sometimes. Mm. Um, oh, I yeah, Marshall. Statius, yeah, Statius is like very interesting. It's I think Statius is really hard for me actually, like because of a lot of the the context I'm missing. It's more of a cultural mm-hmm. context thing. Um, I think. But and a lot of these like Greek genitives that come in. But mm-hmm. uh really, really interesting to see like the influences of Virgil and Ovid and other poets on him. So yeah, it's hard. Poetry, there's yeah. I don't <laughs> <Right>. know. <laughs> Ilsa? Ilsa favorite author? Seneca. Latin or Greek. Yeah, oh well for Latin- Oh Seneca. Okay, Seneca's sorry. Now, I might have to change my poetry answer to Seneca because I love <laughs> Seneca's tragedies. But yeah. Elsa, go ahead. 
No, no, that's great. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I, so I love Seneca's um, letters. Mm-hmm. That I've had more exposure to those, but I also recently, for class last semester, read his Ad Helvium. Um, Ad Helvium. Mm. Uh, like so, it's like uh, it's the it's consolation. It's a consolatio uh, to his mother because he was exiled. So he writes his consolation to his mother. Is the only um, literary work we have that's did it, that's written to to a mom, right? And he talks, I mean, there's a lot of, like, obviously there are the Romans, a lot of misogyny in there, but the way that he writes about his mom is just so amazing. Like he's, he yeah. calls her like the Optima, like she's the best. And he, um, you know, just uh, the way that he approaches, he's like, yeah, you know, you should, you should go study. You should like, for, for as consolation, he says, you should go and you should, you know, learn the humanities. You should do, you know, um, literary arts. And, and he mentions, you know, like, I know that you haven't done this because of my father, but there's no, you know, what I loved about it is there's no, I, there's no note that he thinks that she couldn't do it or that women in general couldn't do it. It's just that she's being held back. That's what he says by his father. Um, but just the way that he, you know, it's just nice to see that, how he talks to his mom in this. It's stylized, obviously. It's literature. But that was pretty cool. I really like that. Uh, but I'm a big fan of, of Seneca, not just, uh, just in general, you know, there it's a very common sense type of philosophy, um, which I like. And then just, I, I think it's pretty Cicero for style, without a doubt, it's beautiful. Um, but uh, of it then for, um, poetry, hands down, I am yeah, a Ovid big, is great. big Ovid fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think often um people choose virgil and virgil is really a, a, an amazing um, an amazing poet um but with i feel like with ovid some of you know he has this whole thing about art hides art is hiding art right that's what mm-hmm. something that's really artful mm-hmm. is actually hidden the art is hidden from it and that's kind of what happens i think with um with his poetry is that it is so artful that some of it is a bit hidden but it's it's easy to find if you look for it. Mm-hmm. So that's mine. Do you have a favorite, Steve? I like the idea of reading Livy again. Mm-hmm. I like the mm-hmm. idea of reading uh, Caesar because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I, I I like um, uh, his his bravery, his cr- bravery, or is it his ballsiness to cross the Rubicon and um, mm-hmm. take over a, a country? Uh, I thought that was kind of neat. Um, oh, in turn. Yeah. In terms of uh, in Greek, I actually like the idea of uh, Herodotus mm. uh, to Love some Herodotus. extent Thucyd- yeah. Thucydides because Thucydides mm. was kind of trashing Herodotus the entire time. Uh, but Herodotus, uh, I like and I, when I say the idea is because I, I read these things so many years ago, I haven't read them again. Uh, but Herodotus kind of inspired my own blog writing and the mm. whole traveling the world because he mm-hmm. was one of these guys who... And he gets criticized for this, like how mm-hmm. he just kind of fills in the blanks. And he talks about stuff like without any sort of scientific uh, research. I'm going, but that's what you accumulate when you go to the local pub and you talk to someone and you hear stories mm-hmm. and you get yeah. three or four different stories. And then you just write it down and say, well, you can make your decision. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. what I heard. So yeah. I kind of liked uh, Herodotus' approach. Cicero, I like Cicero because of the, um, I never read it in class, but I like the idea that he was one of these guys who would say, well, in court, he would say, I can't call you a complete, you know, piece of garbage, uh, cause the law won't let me, 
but I'll say that if I were able to say it, I would say that, but I can't, so I won't say it. Right. And he would say those words. Right. And you're going, that's, be- that's beautiful. That's His wonderful. preparation is really great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that's what, uh, I mean, I would love to return to them. Uh, the problem with returning to Latin is that, uh, unlike you guys, I mean, you can use this stuff right away. I could, I, okay, arguments could be made. I could start my own podcast, start my own YouTube series. Yes, all that. <laughs> Fully understand. Uh, I can say that Mandarin Chinese is currently taking up my entire life. So like the way yeah. you guys are talking about uh, acquiring and inputting Latin, uh, like, and Andrew, you said flashcards, useless. Uh, every morning, <laughs> every morning, uh, I've had to change my workout schedule because every morning I'm going outside, I do a walk. And for 30 minutes, I'm looking at flashcards mm-hmm. uh, for for Chinese characters, but they're yeah. put in context. They have a sentence. Of course. As well. Yeah, that makes a huge um, difference. Mm-hmm. Lots of listening yeah. afterwards, like so radio programs yeah. in Chinese. Uh, during, I have these book, these tracing books, these character mm-hmm. tracing books. I do that. I have three different teachers now. And that night, I my bedside stand has a the uh, HSK five textbook right beside mm-hmm. my bed, and I have to spend fifteen minutes going through a grammar point mm-hmm. uh, t- before I go to bed. Hopefully, if I can usually stay awake. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Mandarin absorbs my life right now, but. I like hearing the, I mean, I, I turn on the, uh, your, your podcast as well. It's, it's great to hear you guys are able to do this and everything. Um, the videos I can't watch, uh, as often, uh, of but the podcast I'm able to, uh, download and, uh, or uh, on, on your, on the platform and everything. So that's great. Um, going forward. So we got two potential PhD holders. Uh, Andrew, you said, ah, not for me yet. Not necessarily. No. Maybe we'll see. Um, I, for me, uh, on my side of things, I left after a master's degree because I was like, I don't see the, uh, mm-hmm. the point in doing it. I want to travel and classics was not going to enable me to travel the way that teaching English would. Right. Um, and so with that, that's, I, I sort of left the, uh, and also to be fair, my departments were more focused on the philological sort of, uh, parsing texts to the extent that just right. made it a very not pleasant experience all the time. So, right. Mm-hmm. And then the PhD reading lists, I was like, I'm not ready for that. Not at all. Yeah. So that's kind of why I left you guys going forward five, 10, 15, 15 years is a long time, but uh, yeah. five years, two years. What do you guys see uh, for the, both the field of study for your personal studies? Mm, that's a big question. I mean, I think um, in, in two years, Ilsa and Claire are both still going to be in school. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I won't be getting a PhD for at least another three and a half years. Is Um, it a six-year program or five-year program? It's a six-year program, yeah. Yeah. And I took a year off last year when I was abroad. Um, I took a leave of absence. So I, yeah, so I have another, I'm in the middle of my third year. I have another three and a half years. Um, And so I, but, you know, five years down the line, um, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But I would like to be teaching in some capacity, um, whether that is at a university or in a high school. And yeah, um, I, I really enjoy teaching. I also really enjoy doing research, but the options for doing that are more limited. Um, so I'm not entirely sure, but I definitely think that I'll stay in the field. I have no intention of leaving the field in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I would love it if I could find a um, a college teaching position. Not because um, I I just never I've never taught kids, 
so high school, I, you know, that's kind of scary. The bigger thing for me is that I, I tend to care a lot about my students. And, um, you know, with children, they just don't have as much autonomy over their situations. I'm just, I, like, it's, a, it's just something that I personally don't know if I am up for that. And also the fact that in the States and, you know, in many other countries, the teachers are just not valued. You know, you're expected to work um, impossible hours and for for less than a minimum wage um, per you know per hour it's it's kind of a ridiculous system um, you know and it's it's expected that you will live on your passion for teaching um, so that doesn't feed you yeah yeah you know like <laughs> what they, they expect it's true passion it, salad does not taste good exactly. <laughs> um, Having it right now, okay. No, exactly. So I don't know if that's where I'll be going. If I do find a good position that I don't have to move, um, you know, I have a family. I, we have a, I have a fourteen-year-old son as well. He'll be oh, done wow. with school by that time. I'm at the same stage as um, Claire, so um, you know, maybe maybe by that time, I don't know what a lot could happen in three and a half years. But mm -hmm. a lot of positions nowadays require that you know you have to move, and it's temporary. Mm -hmm. It's not like you move and it's a oh, sessional now position. Now you have right. a job, right? So it's um, I don't know if I will be at a point in my life, at a point in our lives, where um, from Andrew and me, where. Um, you know, I would be happy moving and then in, and after a year or two moving again and then after a year or two moving again. Um, so, you know, we'll see. I'll always be teaching Latin because we teach at immersion events with nonprofits like like Salvi, the um, yeah. North Latin, uh, the North American Institute for La Living Latin. Um, so I'll always be teaching that through our business. Right. I'll be teaching. So I'll definitely have that fulfillment. So I'm not worried about that. Um, I am more thinking about what's, you know, what what will bring an income and bring give me an income and that I can, you know, be satisfied at the end of the day that I've done my job. So with teaching, you're always on, right? Yeah. Um, which I don't mind if I'm, you know, it's it's fine if I'm compensated. But um, what I would love if I don't get a teaching job is just have a job that I can do nine to five. And then when I'm done, I'm done for the day. Right. I think that's often something that um, people who are not in a teaching profession profession um, kind of overlook is how amazing it is that people can do that. They can go home. That's and a beautiful feeling. About grading or it's wonderful. Like, Lesson plans. I know it's wonderful. And I have done so. I mean, I started only studying when I was 21. I did many different jobs before then. And I was also working through those studies because I, I had a child and I had to support us both um, and, and, you know, uh, still pay for university. So it's, um, you know, I've done many different jobs and I know that I can find fulfillment in other things because I like doing a job well. Right. Yeah. That's that's good enough for me. And then just for that passion to fulfill that, I can teach with these nonprofits and with our business. So um, if I don't get a teaching job at a at a college, then, you know, I you have lots of options. Exactly. Right. That's I good. Just, I'm just happy that I can I, I, I'm doing what I love and I can carry mm -hmm. on doing that even if I'm not working in the in the field. Yeah. 
The only yeah. problem with a nine to five job is that work starts to interfere with your non-work activities. You're like, mm. it's nine o'clock and I haven't finished editing this video or this podcast mm. or That's reading exactly this book right. and, yeah, you know, so thinking I mean, out doom, uh, not doomsday, uh, uh, uh brainstorming the uh, yeah. idea for the doomsday scenarios. That if something went wrong, I could do this, but uh, yeah, now right. I have to turn off my brain for at least 10 minutes so I can do my work for at least 10 minutes and then, you know, yeah, work becomes an inconvenience after that. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So it, would, it would be, it would be wonderful if I could, um, you know, like Andrew and I've talked about if if we won the lottery, we would open a school that, or a, you know, or a retreat type of thing where we would just have a library and place. Latin and Greek immersion. Yep. Yeah, people just come and they speak Latin and Greek. Although awesome. that's what we do. What there. would the difference be between the, your school and the other schools that are currently offering the same thing? I mean, like we would offer all, we would offer immersion for all ages. And we would offer all subjects taught in Latin, biology, chemistry, math, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And just It'd be like, fun. Yeah. Just live in Latin. That would be, that would be yeah. awesome. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Andrew, uh, going forward, uh, what do you think? I mean, you, we've already uh, said the PhD. Maybe not, but you don't know, of course. Uh, what do you see in the next couple of years? Right. That's a great question. I mean, like, I... I enjoy a lot of what I do now. I enjoy my job teaching at the high school. I enjoy teaching online through Locke. I enjoy the opportunities that I've been afforded because of our position at Locke. I've been invited to teach at conferences in, in multiple countries. I've been invited to teach at conferences in the States, right? I've been, um, which I really enjoy doing. Like, I love going to new places, meeting new people, all in Latin, right? And teaching sessions and it's just it's a really great time so i i love doing that i think that in the next couple of years i'd like to more seriously think about creating a latin program for the summer um okay. in, in rome um i would like to do a sort of like uh but a true latin immersion right where we go to rome we spend three weeks we are immersed in latin and we you know read texts we see sites we do visits so on and so forth sort of like the living latin in rome experience that i had at paideia but entirely in latin um because living latin in rome was not a full immersion program right which i think it was a benefit for me at that time but i would like to be able to open up something that's total immersion and invite people to come and hang out in rome and speak latin maybe go to greece and speak ancient greek those are programs i'd like to get off the ground i'd also like to start thinking about what sort of media could exist out there in Latin that could bring people at any level of fluency to a higher level of fluency and joyfully, like TV shows, music videos. Like, what are things that we have in other languages that we just don't have in Latin, and how do we make them? So, friends. Right. Friends. 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 Right. Yeah. Amiki. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. that would that would be fun. Like, just, you know, creating creating... I don't know, even a Latin sitcom. Like, I want to get projects off the ground that are things that we do in our daily lives, but just do them in Latin. Because that's what we do. We already live our lives in Latin. Ilsa, myself, Claire, we do things in Latin every day, right? Um, I just want to provide as much as possible also opportunities for people to be able to use that for their own benefit in learning, right? Yeah. So that's part part of it, at least. Um, that's yeah. what I want to do is get some of these pet projects off the ground and get them going. Well, it sounds That's like also, you, you you'll be okay. able to do it because I mean you've been gaming in you you basically you don't script any of your gaming absolutely live not streams, do you? zero right. zero, I mean, zero just, scripts yeah Claire <laughs> you were gonna say something oh no I was just gonna say that that's like also something I 
also a goal for me is getting some of my half finished projects finished. Um, there's a lot of like writing in Latin and Greek that I like to, to -hmm. get done and put out there and videos and all that sort of stuff that I was doing a lot during the pandemic and haven't had, not that the pandemic is over, but haven't had time, you know, as my life has gone more in person to do that as much, but, um, yeah. I love yeah. content creating and all that is super fun. So yeah. Do you guys edit your podcast very much or is it more just like um, you record and go? It's mostly record and go. There are right. times where our laughter gets out of hand. And so we have to pause and stop. There are times, <laughs> there are times where we misspeak because we're human too. And then we right. swear and then we edit out the swear. Right. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. um, there are times when, you know, we're, it's like, middle of the semester and like my brain doesn't want to function and i say more um than any other word you know uh that that happens and i try i try when i edit i try to edit as much of the ums out but they're still there yeah it's it's as raw as we can get it and still call out a product we're proud of so very 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 little editing goes into it Claire, I hear your your concern there. It's like I have these projects half finished. One of the reasons I, I do these podcasts rough and unedited because if I started editing them, yeah, it would never happen. Like yeah. it's, I have hard drives full of videos and audio, never edited. Yeah. I'm like, I just forget it. Just publish the thing. That's it. Right. That's that's yeah. the same thing with our gaming streams. Right. Is that I? There are so many amazing YouTubers out there who just the gaming and Twitch streaming is what they do, and they put it out there, and they do tons of amazing editing, and it really does help it. But like, I just. With everything that we do, there's just not enough time to do that. It's not our full-time job. And so it's just we 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 do the stream, we have fun, we download it, we upload it, we're done. Yeah, I don't even like uploading. I hate it, especially <laughs> given where I live. Uh, sometimes internet connections can be a little bit dicey. I can imagine. Uh, to, to outside sources. Inside sources aren't so difficult to get to, but mm. it's the outside sources. If I publish them there, it gets a little tough. But, I understand. Um I was going to ask about tenure, but I mean, you've sort of answered the question already that uh, it's up in the air, which is sort of one of the reasons. Uh, I think the the one of the guys I was in graduate school with three other guys, two other guys, sorry, so it's three of us total. Um, and uh, funny, I remember asking him about classics, and he's like, you know, I, every time I read something, I, I felt like I got something from it. You could tell that he sort of mm. embodied that sort of same spirit that you guys have. Uh, he doesn't speak it though, um, mm. but uh, he only got tenure track like a couple of years ago and he's been mm-hmm. like we graduated a decade or more i can't remember yeah so it's tenure track is hard to come by uh, do these positions even exist anymore or is it like a, a bygone barely. it's barely, barely. Yeah. and and for every one there's at least 150 applicants yeah, right. yeah. No, definitely so yeah. there actually is right now if i'm not mistaken a tenure track position open for a junior latinist at bu um and they have gotten all the i don't know how many applications they got or anything like that but i know that that's a that's something that they have right now but that's not that's not everywhere and it's it is difficult to come by there are also lots of places like in south africa where i did my undergraduate degree they don't teach latin anymore right. very soon after i left um they they stopped teaching it uh, because oh, for various reasons, right? Because you left. There's no students <laughs> left. Yeah, I was the only student in my second and third and fourth year. Uh, but um, no, it's just you know they just the university would freeze the positions. Is when people retire, they just froze yeah. those positions and they never reinstated them for at least for for classics. Mm, yeah. yeah. So, I don't yeah. know how it's anymore and more. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. Well, maybe it's going to change anyway. I mean, first of all, 10-year track is going to require you to have your own podcast and YouTube stream. So <laughs> you've already started that. Uh, but going forward, it might be mostly online anyway in the, in the metaverse. Right, in the metaverse. Oh, goodness. All right. Um, well, um, I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, is there anything else that people, like, where can people find you, find your uh, activities, find your publications and offerings? Right. That's great. Uh, so for anything lock related, you can go to habesnelock.com, H-A-B-E-S-N-E-L-A-C.com. I think I spelled that right. Um, and then uh, there, there are links to all of our social media pages. They're just little icons. You can find our Twitch, our, our TikTok, our Twitter. We do, we do it all, right? Um, and that's available there for everything that's that related. And our podcasts are available on most platforms, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts. And Claire, you have your own YouTube channel. Is that correct? I do. Yes. Uh, I have my YouTube channel is just my name, which is Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E-M-I-E-H-E-R, Claire Mir. Um, So if you look that up, I have some ancient Greek videos on there. I haven't posted anything in a long time, but I do also have a website that's just Claire Mir my name.com and I'm currently doing a, a series on there, a blog series of blog posts about um, teaching Latin this semester and kind of combining the grammar translation, comprehensible input approach um, mm-hmm. and using both mostly lingua Latina, but also some of Wheelock's because that's the standard book in my department. So yeah. um, that's something that, yeah, if anyone's interested, they can, they can follow me there. Mm-hmm. All right. You also find uh, links to all of our social stuff, not just not just the lock stuff that mostly is me and Andrew, but also um, so uh, like Claire's stuff under about us. Oh, yeah, under, yes. Your whole team we have that is on our listed page there, I think. Yeah, yes. Team, you could go to Claire's name. Um, you'll find links to all our stuff there. Yep. Well, perfect. I have one last question that I think my colleagues uh, would love for you to weigh in on. Uh, that we had a little bit of a difference of opinion about. Um, oh boy. Some people said that uh, English is now the lingua franca. Uh, and uh, I was like, well, it can't be a lingua franca. And mistakenly, I mentioned that, it, well, it's not French, which they laughed. And like, ah, you silly. It's about the Franks. I'm like, okay, fine. Wikipedia that. I claim that English cannot be a lingua franca because it cannot, it's not the Frank language. It's either Angelica, like uh, it's English or it's Britannia. What do you guys say? It can, is, can it be a lingua franca, even though it's not the language of the Franks? Oh, wow. I mean, like, I think, I think lingua franca has become sort of a, uh, what's the word, a calc, right? For just a way okay. to express a universal language. So in my, in my proscriptivist head, I would agree. In my descriptivist head, I would say, meh, it's just what people say. And also, can I, yeah, can I, I agree can with I, that? Can I, can I, I I, I think it is, but I would love to amend the statement to broken Ooh. English is the lingua franca. Oh. Okay. <laughs> it necessarily, like all good English, like some, I'm from South Africa, a lot of the English that people speak is a bit broken, um, you know, broken. So, broken English, yes. Right on. So it, it, it can oh, be right. a lingua franca then, I guess. I mean, I, I would say, <laughs> depends on your, you know, uh, approach there, but... I mean, if well, we... these guys are all British, so I just thought, well, why don't you just, or like, could it be a lingua Americana? Oh boy, mm, okay. <laughs> that, so well, right? <laughs> uh, American is the forms. lingua franca, right? Oh man, it's the lingua vulgata, maybe. Yeah, the oh, lingua yeah. Vul- lingua vulgaris, yeah. Yeah, yeah but no one would be able to pronounce that. Uh, well, yeah, the lingua vulgaris, <laughs> vulgata. 
something yeah. like that. I don't know. So it's, it's close enough. I don't know. But yeah, that's that's a good that's a good compromise. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, guys, for joining me today. I appreciate it taking the time. I know it's it's late where you are. It's midday where I am, but you guys are all staying up past your bedtimes, past your Latin bedtime readings. I appreciate it. I'll put all the show notes up on my website uh, as well in case people want to get in touch. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank I appreciate so it. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much for having us, Stephen. Really appreciate right. it. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. That's episode number 37 of my podcast. Thank you very much for joining me uh, and joining in that conversation with uh, Andrew, Ilsa, and Claire, uh, part of the team that makes up the Latinitas Anima, Animi Causa uh, website. Uh, they put out a podcast about once every month or so, uh, but they do post a lot more on YouTube as well. I'll have the show notes and everything up on my website, uh, com under the podcast section. Uh, if you can't find it there, uh, Spotify, Apple, and Google are the uh, major streaming platforms that have my podcast. Of course, there are others as well. Folks, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. We'll talk again. Have a good one. Bye-bye.